Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com That's why we have to think as black people. Stop singing and dancing and start thinking. Thinking and reading. I say reading is more important than watching TV. And not getting addicted to looking at those small uh, iPhone screens. See, where you were getting custom to looking there in a narrow space as opposed to paying attention broadly to what is happening around you. See, and people are getting addicted. That's why some people tragically are getting hit by automobiles because they won't even stop looking long enough to look and see which way the traffic is flowing. It wasn't old lady who swallowed a pen. She was happy again when she swallowed the pen. <laughs> she swallowed the pen. She's writing the books. I don't know why she swallowed the, the books, but she didn't get any She swallowed the pencil. That is Nova Scotia rapper Pat Stay reading with his children, Alora, who is seven, and Calvin, 17 months. Cuddling with the caregiver around the pages of a picture book is an iconic image of childhood and a moment this family says brings them closer together. At the end, something really funny happens. She eats a cow, and she burps it all out. It's the best part of my life. I, I love it. It's a, it's a everyday thing, every night thing. Usually mommy is here reading to all of them, and they, they all love reading. He, he comes to you with a book every night. He loves it. He, he'll sit down and push himself right back to you just so you can read him a book. And Alora falls asleep with books in her hands. <laughs> yeah. 
The voice, the stories, the time spent together can create a lasting impression. We asked some prominent Canadians who have written books for children to share their favorite memories of listening to someone reading them a book. The first book I can remember being read is one uh, that my mom got for me when shortly after we moved to Canada. So we moved here when I was three years old from India. And this book was such a favorite that we read it to pieces, I remember. And my mom's sad that she doesn't have it anymore. The only line I remember is, are you crowded out by others, 17 sisters, 18 brothers? She would sit on the edge of our bed and I would be laying in bed under the covers with my head propped up. And my mom uh, raised us boys. She spent so much time with us. She sacrificed a lot to be with us. It wasn't that we didn't get time with her. It was just that the time that we had with her was so special to us because she was all that we had. I remember those windy days in Moncton, New Brunswick, when the power would go out and we'd gather around the candles and, Dad, please tell us a story with your mouth talking. And that's how we used to ask for it, actually. And it meant sometimes a made-up story, but often a story that he was going to read out loud and we were going to gather around. And everything from the saggy, baggy elephant to um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the kid's Bible, I just remember saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So just like in the book, Tom Sawyer, we were out exploring the woods by ourselves and we would come home, mud all over us, bringing back various things, fish that needed to be cleaned that we'd eat later on for dinner. So as my mother and I were reading Tom Sawyer together, I would interject with stories about what had happened when we were out in the woods playing that day when they built a raft and they, uh, Tom and Huck go to an island in the uh, Mississippi River. And uh, anyway, my mother saying, okay, so you can't do that. You can't go and stay out in the woods overnight or do anything like that. And don't run away from home or do anything crazy. And the smell and the taste and the touch of books and the, my grade two teacher sitting on her lap and the, the smell of her perfume, Lily of the Valley. I can remember that as she opened the book and the pages crinkled and turned. One of the ones that I remember most is Outside Over There by Maurice Sendak, which was kind of a, a messed up book looking back on it now. What I recall most about Outside Over There is that there's a goblin baby <laughs> My mom read me this other book called My Mama Says There Aren't Such Things as Ghouls, Zombies, Vampires, Fiends. That scared me for several years. Sometimes I still look down the stairs as I'm walking up and see if anything's falling behind me because of that book. And when I was a little bit older, I remember sitting with her and her saying, oh, you know, one day you'll be reading yourself and you won't want me to read to you anymore. And it was, I could tell from her that that made her sad. But at the time, I couldn't picture ever there being a time where she wouldn't be reading to me. So I didn't know what she was talking about. The voices of Manjusha Pawagi, family court judge and author of The Girl Who Hated Books, which she points out is not autobiographical. David A. Robertson, author of the Governor General's award-winning When We Were Alone, about a young girl and her grandmother sharing the history of residential schools. Author, storyteller, and children's bookstore owner Sherry Fitch, and former astronaut Dave Williams, who has written a series of books for kids about space. All of those voices you just heard. Reading to Children Out Loud isn't just a source of warm feelings and lovely memories, however. Research shows it is also one of the most beneficial activities for developing brains. Journalist Megan Cox Gurdon is the children's book critic for the Wall Street Journal. She's got five kids. She is the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction, and she joins us from Washington. Hello. Oh, hello, Anna Maria. Lovely to be with you. What were you thinking as you listened to those stories about being read to out loud? 
Oh, I was beaming. I'm sitting here beaming and just so happy to hear the sort of validation of what I you know, know to be true, what I've experienced myself. Uh, it's just such a lovely kind of braid of time and books and people and generations. This tradition of reading aloud, you know, it connects parents to children and children to their children that they have uh, in this wonderful way with language and warmth. It's just about the most beautiful thing we have at our disposal as, as human beings. What is it that makes the activity so memorable, so enjoyable. All sorts of things are happening. Of course, there's the emotional connection that people feel that we heard so beautifully brought out in those in those remarks. Um, but we now know there's a lot of science to support what we experience anecdotally. Um, there is a physiological reward in sitting down together with a book and a child, or for the child with a book and a parent. It's a chemical alteration that takes place. So we know that, for instance, uh, the stress hormones are decreased and bonding hormones increase. Just that simple kind of lovely, sacrificial moment of sitting down together. And then we also know that the picture book experience for a child uh, with their young and developing brain is immensely nourishing cognitively. There's research now that shows us that when a child is looking at the pictures in a picture book, uh, you know, maybe sitting in close, warm proximity with a loving adult and listening to the words, the vocabulary, the cadences, the grammar, the, the voice of the loved one, reading the story... All sorts of deep, important brain networks are engaging and synchronizing in a way that is very productive in developing a child's kind of cognitive capacities. What is one of your favorite memories of reading with your kids? Oh, my goodness. I've been reading with them for 24 years, and I think the one that really still stands out to me is we've read Treasure Island, that wonderful Robert Louis Stevenson book, many, many times over the years. Every couple of years it comes through. And I remember once having that extraordinary moment where I looked around and I thought, this is this is it. This is the stuff. I was reading the book. I had two toddlers on my lap. I didn't have the fifth baby at that point, so just four of them. Uh, my son was stretched out on the back of the sofa behind my shoulders, kind of like a jaguar. Um, I had another daughter, my eldest daughter, tucked in next to me. And on the floor, my husband was lying there in his suit, having just come home from work to join the story. And I thought, I am really doing something real here. And I'm thrilled to discover through the research for my book that that wasn't just a kind of gauzy impression. It's true. We really do something very significant when we read aloud. It does sound sort of nostalgic through, through like, you know, through the gauzy uh, curtains there. Why is it still necessary today when we have all kinds of technology kids can use? Well, you know, this is exactly the thing, and this is why I think it's very important that we're having this conversation now. You know, we are all grappling with the effects of technology, and screens and devices are fantastic tools, right? But they make it incredibly difficult for us to focus and pay attention and to be fully present with the people we love most, uh, even, you know, to know really what to do with ourselves when we're offline. You know, we're all being trained to have these very short attention spans. And we know from a great deal of research now that uh, our interactions with technologies are impeding our human relationships. And this is crucial when it comes to parents and children. So, you know, I posit that reading aloud really is kind of a cure for what ails us. You know, we're not going to get rid of our technology. We're not going to, you know, have some kind of Luddite explosion. But we do need to learn to live in harmony with our machines. And reading aloud is something that supplies the nourishment, the kind of very human nourishment that we need that will help us live in greater balance. Okay, I know you do it, but you know there are people listening going, okay, parents are busy, they're working, they're stuck in traffic to get home. They're cooking food. They're getting kids to activities. How reasonable is it to expect to have time 
for reading like this? You know, that's a, a very important question. And I would never want to reproach any parent or say, you know, you have to do this one other thing on the to-do list. But here's the thing about it. The busier you are as a parent, the less time you have tranquilly with your children, the more valuable reading aloud is. You know, and Anna Maria, the reason for that is it brings in so many domains. It's a way of fomenting conversation and having, like, natural exchanges. It's, a, it's an activity that brings you physically closer together, which is very physiologically rewarding and, you know, necessary. Children need to they have to have closeness. Uh, well, we do, too, frankly. Um, it's also a way of bathing your children in language, which is so helpful to them as they learn to navigate the world and become fluent readers and speakers and able to express themselves. So, you know, you get all of these things. You get language and uh, the development of a nice long attention span, which is very important. All of these wonderful capacities are brought to bear in this single experience of sitting down together and reading. New York, New York. Let's talk some numbers. Let's start with the number seven. That is the number of black students admitted to next year's freshman class at New York's elite public high school, Stuyvesant. How about 895? That is the size of the entire freshman class of that elite specialized high school. 10% of the students admitted to New York City's elite public schools this year are black or Hispanic, even though black and Hispanic students make up nearly 70% of the city's public school system. Joining us now to talk about all these disparities is Eliza Shapiro. She covers New York City schools for The New York Times. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you explain how you even get into one of these top-tier public high schools in New York City? Absolutely. So this test, there's a single one-day high-stakes admissions test that you take sort of like the SAT on a Saturday morning. And if you score high enough on the test, you get a seat at one of the eight specialized high schools. Stuyvesant is the most selective and the most competitive of those eight. So what have been the explanations for why these stark racial disparities exist at these eight elite schools? Yeah, so I think there's two things. The biggest issue here is test prep. We've seen the same debate with the SAT and ACT, certainly in light of the college admission scandal. There is a huge test prep industry in New York that prepares kids who are aware of the test to master it. So test prep is one. The other, which is related, is awareness. Some kids know about these schools from the minute they're in kindergarten. Some kids learn about the existence of the specialized high school system and the test to get into them a few months before they can sit to take the test. So people have been talking about reforming the admissions process for years. And now Mayor Bill de Blasio has this proposal on the table. Can, can you talk about what it is and what's been the pushback? Right. I mean, this is easily one of the most divisive, most controversial issues in New York City right now. Mayor Bill de Blasio not only wants to get rid of this high stakes test, but replace it with a system that's modeled on a University of Texas type system where you take the top performers in each city middle school and automatically offer them a seat at a specialized high school. There has been enormous pushback, both from alumni of the schools who are concerned that getting rid of the test would water down the school's sort of famed academic rigor. And there's been a lot of concern from Asian American families and community groups that say Asian American students would lose access to about half of the seats that they currently hold in the specialized high schools. So many of these families feel the proposal will be discriminatory against Asians and 
potentially pits Asian American families against Black and Latino families in a city that is mostly minority. Are there other big city school districts that do better at this? It has been a big challenge for cities across the country. Boston right now is having a renewed debate about some of its most elite public schools. San Francisco has an elite public high school known as Lowell. That system is based on grades and test scores, but still paltry numbers of Black and Hispanic students. So Mm. New York is not alone in struggling with how to get more Black and Hispanic kids into its most elite public schools. We've been hearing so much about disparities in access to top-tier education. I mean, you know, last week, the college admission scandal dominated headlines. There's been this ongoing litigation over Harvard's treatment of Asian American applicants. How would you say this story about New York City public high schools fits into this larger conversation we've been having? I would say it helps raise the stakes of this debate. What we're really asking is, Who deserves admission into the best public schools in this country and the best, quote unquote, private universities? And it just seems like that debate, which has always, of course, been a facet of American life, but it seems like that debate is accelerating. Mm -hmm. And the outrage on both sides about the Stuyvesant numbers and the specialized high schools is only going to expand that debate towards elite public schools beyond just institutions of higher education. That's Eliza Shapiro. She covers New York City schools for The New York Times. Thanks very much. Thank you. At one time, most major universities didn't offer ethnic studies courses. It took fights by students across the country to help create those classes. The battle began at a commuter college in San Francisco, where a multiracial coalition of students went on strike. And things got ugly. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the end of that strike. From NPR's Code Switch podcast, Shireen Marisol Maraji has more. And a warning to our listeners, this story contains strong language and racial references that some listeners may find offensive. The longest student strike in U.S. history kicked off in the fall of 1968 on the campus of San Francisco State. I went to the Bay Area to speak with some of the original strikers and organizers to find out why. Hello. I'm here. I'm Shereen. You didn't see my, my doorbell. Do you not like the knocking? No, I normally won't answer. <laughs> That's one of the strikers opening the door to his home in Oakland, California. I'm Jerry Bernardo. I am still alive. Bernardo says to understand the strike, you have to know what led up to it. He was one of the few black students on campus in the late 60s and helped organize the first black student union in the country. This student group volunteered in black neighborhoods, tutoring high school kids, and recruited them to come to SF State. Bernardo says it was not easy to convince their parents this was a good idea. People were scared to go out to a white college campus. You were not welcome On campus, the Black Student Union was agitating to get black students work-study jobs. They were asking for black history courses. People didn't know much about black history. Nobody would teach it to you. They were also pressing campus administrators for more admission allotments for black students. 
it was working. They even got the administration to guarantee admission slots to a few hundred black students two semesters in a row. Other students of color on campus caught wind, and they wanted that too. Vernado says the administration told them to ask the black students to share. We're not in a position to be giving away anything. <laughs> Leaders of the Black Student Union suggested that the other students of color join forces. They did, and they called themselves the Third World Liberation Front. Historian Jason Ferreira is writing a book about the strike and has done around 50 oral histories. These other students of color, Chicanos, Asian Americans, were dealing with the same issue that black students had been struggling with before black consciousness, right? They were running around trying to be white, looking in the mirror and wishing they looked different. By the time I got to college at San Francisco State, I was angry. Laureen Chu grew up in San Francisco's Chinatown and was a member of the Third World Liberation Front. She was mad about how her parents dealt with racism. Particularly, I think my father, you know, he would get cussed out by being called a stupid Chinaman. And he usually laughed it off. And I don't get this. Third World Liberation Front members like Laureen Chu were also organizing in their communities and on campus. There were students active in the anti-war movement, too, primarily white students. Historian Jason Ferreira says these were crazy times. The Vietnam War was ongoing. Dr. King had been assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Malcolm had been assassinated. Emotions were high, and the spark that set the strike off was the suspension of an English instructor. He was let go for his controversial stance on the Vietnam War and disparaging remarks he made about President Lyndon Johnson. Our statement was that uh, the war in Vietnam is racist. It is a war that uh, crackers like Johnson are using black soldiers and uh, poor white soldiers and Mexican soldiers as dupes and fools to fight against uh, people of color in Vietnam who have never called black people nigger. George Murray was popular with members of the Black Student Union, and they demanded his reinstatement. Jerry Bernardo says... When that didn't happen, the strike kicked off. The strike started on November 6, 1968. Strikers had a long list of demands. Two big ones. A college of ethnic studies with curricula geared toward people of color, Native American, Asian American, Black, and Latino and that all non-white students who apply to San Francisco State be accepted in the fall of 1969. Jerry Bernardo told me there were police on the scene from early on. The police would just wade into crowds and just start beating people with their uh, nightsticks. This went on day after day after day after day. Everybody was under attack. Just a few weeks after the strike began, the president of San Francisco State at the time, Robert Smith, was confronted by protesters using loudspeakers. There have been more police brought on campus as the the concern for safety and uh, personnel. There are news accounts of students throwing rocks, carrying lead pipes, cursing out police officers and administrators. And it was hard to keep classes going and students learning. President Smith resigned less than a month into the strike and was replaced by Samuel Ichie Hayakawa, an English professor at San Francisco State. Hayakawa told the students, enough. Until these demonstrations, strikes, raids, and other disruptive acts are ended, I will continue my policy of asking police assistance to maintain the security of this campus. He told us that he would forbid us to have a rally. 
But students organized one anyway on January 23, 1969. Laureen Chu was in the library hiding books so students who refused to join the strike couldn't study. And by the time she joined the demonstration, the police were there too. They just surrounded the entire group, and because I was at the edge of the crowd, I just saw brutality I never want to see again. Some people I knew. Were getting their heads bashed in, blood all over the place. They fell, pushed to the ground, and still getting hit when they're in the ground. Like I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. Laureen Chu was arrested that day along with almost 500 other students. She was charged with a few misdemeanors, pleaded not guilty, but got 20 days in jail. I spent my graduation going to jail. Black student union leader Jerry Vernardo was arrested on that day too. I did a year. Other people did more. People did time. Relationships were were stressed to the point of, of of crumbling. Historian Jason Ferreira says, "Imagine that kind of pressure being put on students." All for what? Black studies, ethnic studies. The strike went on for two more months until both sides agreed to negotiate a deal. The administration wanted to get back to business, and hundreds of students charged with crimes were facing court hearings and jail time. The strike calls. On November sixth, nineteen sixty-eight, by the Black Students Union and other members of the Third World Liberation Front, and strongly supported by the revolutionary Black、uh, white students, ended today, March twentieth, nineteen sixty-nine. Students won some of their demands, including a big one: a college of ethnic studies. Jerry Vernardo says he didn't step back on campus for thirty years. Such a bitter experience. Even though you won, we didn't see it as a victory. You know, we saw it as a, a coming to an arrangement. You know, I don't know whether there is any victory in violence and warfare for anybody. Today, there are ethnic studies courses in universities across the country, and you can find them in K through 12 classrooms too. It all started at San Francisco State, which still has the only College of Ethnic Studies in the country. Shereen Marisol Meraji, NPR News. This guy body slammed this、oh, yeah, this 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 sixteen-year-old black girl in in class. I mean, she would not give up her phone,、yeah. uh, which was wrong, and then she wouldn't leave the room, which is wrong. But he compounded it by, I think, this is just horrendous to, to treat a, a child like this, a, a teenager.、Um, but I also have sympathy for people in authority because I think parents just let kids do anything nowadays, so they never listen to authority. Police in Chesterfield say an officer who serves as a school resource officer at L.C. Bird has been suspended after allegations surface claiming he's a member of a white supremacist group. I'm Bill Fitzgerald. I'm Candace Burns, and our Brendan King spoke to students tonight and tells us how this all unfolded. Brendan, well, the word spread rather quickly after research from an anti-fascist group was published this morning. Chesterfield police began to investigate that one of their own may be involved with a known hate group. Not here, not at LC Bird. The shocked reactions. Yeah, it's hard to believe. From this pair of students outside LC Bird High School. I mean, you really don't know what people do behind closed doors. After hearing the news Monday, Chesterfield Police Chief Colonel Jeffrey Katz recommended the school resource officer here be fired after claims surfaced the officer has ties with an alt-right group called Identity Europa. 
the same group that helped organize the deadly white supremacist rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Hurtful a little bit to to figure out that somebody working for our school kind of feels that way and is working for something like that. I think there's some additional concern around uh, this being a school resource officer. Jonathan Zur is president of the Virginia Center for Inclusive Communities. Being around young people and having that level of influence um, makes this a uniquely concerning issue. Colonel Katz tweeted, there's absolutely no place for intolerant behavior in public service and we will not accept affiliations which even remotely lend themselves to predispositions of bias, period. While Elsie Bird High School leaders sent an email to parents reading, this individual was not an employee of Chesterfield County Public Schools. However, the alleged behavior, if proven accurate, is abhorrent and is not reflective of the ideals or values that we expect demonstrated within our school community. Neither police nor the school system is publicly naming this accused officer yet, but I'm told he has five days to respond to the charges. Working for you, I'm Brennan King, CBS 6 News. Thanks, Black babies cost less. Now this year in her book, Becoming, Michelle Obama opened up about her fertility struggles. She revealed she had had a miscarriage and how isolating that experience was. I felt lost and alone and I feel I felt like I failed because I didn't know how common miscarriages were because we don't talk about them. We sit in our own pain thinking that somehow we're broken. Now, in the book, Michelle Obama also reveals that she used in vitro fertilization to conceive Malia and Sasha. This admission was meaningful for a lot of reasons. Many women struggle with infertility and don't always talk about it. But according to fertility experts and sociologists, black women were more than twice as likely as white women to say that they wouldn't feel comfortable talking about their fertility issues with friends, family, a partner, their doctor, or even a support group. That's a finding from the Black Women's Health Imperative and Oprah Magazine. Yesterday, we were struck because we came across a Twitter thread by one of our favorite guests on the show, L. Joy Williams. She's the head of the Brooklyn chapter of the NAACP and host of the Sunday Civics podcast. She was taking time off from tweeting about campaigns and started a hashtag called Black and IVF about starting her journey with in vitro fertilization. Her first tweet was, so friends, this week my husband and I begin hashtag IVF. I plan to share along the way because there are too many women who suffer in silence regarding fertility, particularly black women, hashtag Black and IVF. Joy, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you for having me. Why did you decide to start the hashtag Black and IVF? Well, you know, I, I was trying to go through this process and we've actually, I've been, you know, suffering with these issues for some time, uh, particularly going back to uh, my first miscarriage. Uh, first miscarriage was years ago. And I needed an outlet other than talking to my partner, other than talking to my therapist, other than talking to doctors. Uh, I needed another conversation um, to describe what I was going through, what we would have to go through the process and just describing it and being very active on Twitter. <laughs> um, I thought about how to use the platform to sort of share this process that could be helpful to other women who are experiencing the same thing, particularly black women, right? And in that clip you mentioned in the, in the beginning, talking about feeling isolated, 
um, even during my miscarriages, I'd never had a conversation about pregnancy loss. It, you know, my first miscarriage, and I remember, you know, the shame and the um, sadness and everything about it. And then when I would talk to women, they could quote to me dates of when their first miscarriage was. Mm-hmm. I met both family members, women on the street, or people that were, you know, consoling or saying something to me, um, NAACP members, you know, and some of them with children of their own, grown children, but could still quote the date, you know, yeah. from 70s, from 80s of their first loss. Because it feels like a death. Yes. Well, it, it you know, it, it is. It is a death. <laughs> you know, and so the fact that, I discovered this world, this that this sorority, I guess you can say, of women who had experienced loss in this way, were experiencing fertility issues, um, and I didn't know about it, never talked about it. I just thought from a kid, just like, oh, you get pregnant and you have a baby. Like, I didn't know that there was anything in between. If you agree or accept the findings from the Black Women's Health Imperative, um, why would there be a racial disparity in women's comfort levels talking about infertility? Well, I think one is talking about medical issues in general. You know, there is a disparity and there's a there's a culture um, that has an impact on it as well. And like I said, there are so, from our overall society, these stereotypes of black women being, you know, fertile and, you know, um, having babies not only for themselves, but, in, you know. So, you, again, if you don't have a culture of talking about those kinds of things, um, um, you know, it does seem um, out of the ordinary, and it then further makes you feel like something is wrong with you because this is not a common conversation. And so just as Michelle Obama say, talking about, like, I felt that I failed, that some, something I did, maybe I ate something, maybe I shouldn't have ran this time or, you know, all mm-hmm. those kinds of things. You think something is wrong with you because you don't know of this world that exists of other people experiencing the same thing. So where are you in the process now since part of the point is to have more people share openly. Have you started treatments or where are you? Yeah. So um, actually, I I have started the uh, journey. And it's so funny because my husband hates the word journey. (laughs) He thinks it's overused. (laughs) But the um, um, our beginnings and, you know, started um, the process. We're actually going today um, for the class. Right. You go through a class and they go through every detail and show videos and everything of what you're going to go through, what your partner is going to go through, through the entire process. And we started our you know, pills and I think hormone shots start next week. And um, so I'll be, you know, using the hashtag and, you know, the same thread, just talking about the journey. And there's so much, right? There's the how your health insurance company impacts. I mean, part of the reason why we didn't start the process until this year is because we had to change health insurances hmm. um, because the insurance that we had didn't cover IVF. And a so we would have insur- had to yeah, come so out of pocket. A lot of insurance doesn't cover IVF, right? Right. right. And so, you know, part of the reason why we had the delay is that we had to do that, right? We had to, you know, find an insurance company that would cover it. So, and there's still out of pocket cost um, associated with it. And interestingly enough, there is also still a disparity even in IVF on the rates of success for black women. And researchers don't know why. I mean, controlling for class, for income, education level, it's not an access issue. There are still, you know, black women just have lower success 
success rates um, than other women and also have higher preterm um, delivery rates mm -hmm. than other women, right? And there's and part of, I think, the conversation about be, being open and talking about the process is um, – you know, maybe we can also find some commonalities. There can be some more research on why particularly uh, fertility issues um, are impacting black women in this country. My guest is Eljoy Williams, head of the Brooklyn chapter of the NAACP and host of the Sunday Civics podcast. She's been on in both those capacities in the past. Today, she's here talking about her fertility journey, as she just put it, despite what her husband thinks about it, <laughs> and the new hashtag that she's created for Twitter, Black NIVF. Joy, how much did Michelle Obama's openness about her fertility struggles and IVF journey and the publicity that got, and positively so, inspire you to speak up? Yeah. So I, um, before she came out in some couple of years, I've talked openly about um, the loss. I've talked publicly about miscarriages and, um, you know, getting close, getting over the 40, which, you know, um, your egg reserve sort of drops significantly after, you know, 30, 35. Um, so I talked about that, but hadn't yet made the decision about whether I was going to talk about or in what capacity I would talk about going through IVF or not. And certainly um, seeing the conversation uh, as people began to hear her story um, made an impact because it was like, you know, here is this woman. Obviously, we think very highly, you know, of Michelle Obama, but we, she's also in a different, um, you know, right. from everybody else. Right. And when you think of um, when people have the common conversation about IVF, they obviously they think about it as being a wealthy white woman, you know, thing for access to fertility. You know, it's not something it talked about as a, a common procedure that women mm -hmm. in general should have access to mm -hmm. um, regarding pursuing um, having children. Um, and so, you know, my conversation was it, it helped me over the edge in like there should be more of us talking about this so that we can make it a part of the regular conversation um, and not that it's something that wealthy people do or that, you know, um, you know, former first ladies have access to. From a study published today counts the number of pregnant women in prison in one year. 1,396. It seems like a simple thing to do, but numbers like this haven't been gathered in decades. We need to know these numbers because when we don't know the numbers, that means that no one's looking and anything can happen to these women. That's one of the authors, Dr. Carolyn Suffren of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. They can be shackled during childbirth. They can be placed in solitary confinement. They can have their complaints of contractions, bleeding, labor complaints ignored and deliver babies in their jail cells or prison cells. Delivering in cells is a worst case scenario, but it does happen. As for shackling during birth, I spoke to Safran a few months ago on this program about that. It's something she has seen firsthand. She worked as an OBGYN in a jail for six years where she cared for incarcerated pregnant women. So for her, this work is very personal. Pregnant incarcerated people are one of the most marginalized and forgotten groups in our country. And the way that I think about it is that this is a reflection of the notion that women who don't count don't get counted. Yeah. And women who don't get counted don't count. I mean, you know this really startling statistic that 
There are now seven times more incarcerated women in prison than there were in 1980. And yet prison facilities and the medical care offered to these women have not seemed to catch up to that reality. Right. And it's highly variable, the kind of medical care that any incarcerated person, but especially a pregnant incarcerated person, would receive. Despite a constitutional mandate that prisons and all institutions of incarceration provide health care to people inside, there is no set of mandatory standards. There is no mandatory oversight that these institutions must follow. And so you get a wide range of some places that are actually providing relatively good pregnancy care and others that are providing harmful, neglectful, or absent pregnancy care. Hmm. So let's get into what your report covers. It's in the American Journal of Public Health. So from 2016 to 2017, we had 22 state prison systems across the country representing a geographically diverse range of states, as well as the Federal Bureau of Prisons reporting to our study database every month for an entire year. And each month, they would report a variety of outcomes, how many pregnant people were admitted, how many births there were, miscarriages, abortions, stillbirths, maternal deaths. And that's how we collected the data. And I noticed that Florida, California, and New York were not included in this report, and they have some of the largest prison populations in the country. That's right. Those three states, along with Texas and Ohio, have the largest populations of female prisoners in the country. Texas and Ohio were in our study. Mm-hmm. New York, Florida, and California declined to participate. Participation was voluntary. But despite this, our data represent 57% of females in prison in the U.S. Oh, so more than half. More than half. You know, something that your study doesn't get into is that there are ripple effects from these births that are happening in prison. There are babies separated sometimes immediately from their mothers and never see their mothers again. That's right. We know that children who are separated from their mothers because they're in custody, they are more likely to end up in the foster care system, even from birth. And everything is stacked against them already. And their opportunities for emotional stability and support, stable housing, education, and they're also more likely to be incarcerated themselves in the future. So the impact of these pregnancies on the next generation, on families, on communities, particularly communities of color, is profound. That's Dr. Carolyn Suffren of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She's the author of Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me, Elsa. Massacre at Christ Church, New Zealand. Live stream, a young Aussie killer invades a set of Muslim mosques and commits a massacre of men, women, and even children. The young man publishes a maniacal manuscript decrying Muslim invaders of Europe while slaughtering Muslims at prayer and in meditation. Online, millions view this carnage live as it happened in Christchurch, a city in New Zealand. The author of this horror was reportedly a white nationalist who expressed opposition to Muslim immigrants. New Zealand, a nation mostly composed of two islands in the southeast Pacific Ocean, is mostly white people from Britain who number in the millions. The Maori, 
indigenous people who are of Polynesian ancestry have lived there for at least 500 years before European arrival with the 18th century exploitations of British Captain James Cook. As a result of European Maori warfare, Maori were reduced to less than 100,000 people. Today, 200,000 Maori survive. So who are the invaders? New Zealand now has a population of about 4.5 million, 71% of which are of European ancestry. Kind of makes you wonder again, who invaded whom? At last count, some 50 Muslims were slain, and an Australian man in his 20s is charged in connection with what we call the Christchurch Massacre. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You know, First Ladies usually have a cause. And you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt. And we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. Many questions have been raised about how graphic videos of this attack were posted and allowed to spread quickly on YouTube, on Facebook, and other social media platforms. The company said they tried to stop it but faced big challenges. Facebook said that it removed one and a half million videos depicting images from the shooting in the first 24 hours after it happened. More than a million of those were blocked as they were transferred to social media. YouTube had its own war room-like response center, but it, too, struggled to stop the posting in the minutes after the attack. Reporter Elizabeth Dwoskin took a close look at how YouTube and others tried to combat all this. She is a Silicon Valley correspondent for The Washington Post, and she joins us now from San Francisco. Elizabeth Dwoskin, welcome to the news hour. So I think my first question is, is as this shooter, this gunman, decided he was going to use his camera as he began this terrible massacre. Was there anything in social media to stop him? That's a great, that's the, like the 10,000-foot question, and it's a great question. I would say that the social media companies, often they say, it's like another day, another failure. This isn't the first murder that's been streamed live on Facebook or uploaded onto YouTube, but... but it's the one that was the most designed to go viral because the shooter was live-streaming himself while appealing to niche online communities that aggressively reposted it. And they reposted different permutations of it, cutting it in half, changing the length, even turning it into animations like a video game. And all that stuff, even after years, after Russian meddling and the tech companies saying they're putting millions of dollars of resources into fighting these types of problems... Uh, many of them couldn't take down the viral content for 24 hours. How did YouTube, which you, I know you spent some time talking to them, how did they first see what was going on? Well, they knew right away on Thursday night U.S. time that um, 
you know, that, that, that a video had been uploaded because, again, it was streamed live on Facebook, but then immediately people on 8chan and other sites started taking copies of the Facebook video and uploading it like crazy onto YouTube. So they already knew this was going to be a problem. And what's wild is that even though it was kind of an all-systems-go effort, by the next morning they're realizing that this stuff is still up and easily findable. So what they actually chose to do, and it doesn't say great things about where the situation is, they basically hit a panic button and they chose to disable some major features of YouTube and they made a huge decision that they've never made before to suspend the use of human moderators. Usually the content will go through AI and then a moderator, a human, makes a decision. But they realize the humans are going too slowly. We're just going to let AI make the decision even though AI is wrong a lot. But they would rather err on the side of being wrong and having less video. But that was like a stopgap measure. And, and, and AI, of course, automated, automated moderating. And was that more successful? Did they find that that worked better? Yeah, after about 24 hours, they were able, with disabling core features of their site, that, I mean, this is the biggest video site in the world, and you have core features that are still disabled to this moment. Um, when they did that, they were able to contain it. But you have to say, and they acknowledge, that's not a solution. That's not a long-term solution. And it's not the first time that they've told me or other journalists that there was a crisis and there was some unprecedented element of that crisis that made it hard for them to anticipate. If you remember the Parkland massacre, right. um, remember when after Parkland the students were being called crisis actors and those videos rose to the very top of YouTube. And that was another thing where they said, well, we couldn't have anticipated that. So uh, is YouTube, and, and I want to ask you about Facebook as well, are they saying they weren't aware that the video could be changed and into many different forms and shared in, in many different ways? It's not as if they didn't know this could happen, is it? They, they know. And remember, they deal with copyrighted videos. They deal with ISIS videos all the time where people use similar tactics. The difference is, is with ISIS recruiting videos and copyright, they actually have pre-recorded files of those videos. Therefore, they can teach their technology to understand any possible snippet of it at upload. But when you have a new video that the technology hasn't seen before, especially when new variations are coming up all the time, what they said is that the trip the, trip the system up. But you're looking and saying, yeah, I mean, can't you anticipate that a new, a totally new video might go viral, might be put on your website in different ways, and that you should try to teach the technology to anticipate that? And I think the sad truth is, is technology isn't there which then raises the question of can the platforms actually police themselves at all? Well, and, and of course, all this raises the question, do the, these social media platforms, do they see their responsibility as stopping this kind of material from being spread? They would say yes, but the reality is is that that's where they, they fail. Um, they also will tell you that it'll never not be posted because they have a system where there's not prior review. Anyone can post, and it only gets reviewed later, if it gets reviewed. And as long as you have that system, you're going to accept that some of this stuff goes up and gets spread. And then let's add to, let's add to this their responsibility. It's not just like the content goes up and anyone sees it. YouTube and Facebook, they have highly personalized algorithms where the content is actually designed to be turbocharged. When people click on it, they start recommending it. So they're making a lot of editorial, curatorial actions that actually promote content to people who didn't even ask for it. And so they have a huge role. I talked today to a former um, director at YouTube who said that he himself was stunned by the level of irresponsibility of those design choices 
but very, very quickly, it sounds as if you're saying that if, if something like this were to happen next week, that the same thing could happen again, that it would be spread that quickly. I think the companies couldn't say no to that. Well, that's uh, disturbing and something for all of us to reflect on. Elizabeth Dwoskin with The Washington Post. We thank you. Thanks, Judy. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched... Black people going to jail. Black people have white having white probation officers, and the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is could some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. In 1997, a Mississippi man named Curtis Flowers was headed for death row. Curtis Flowers was convicted of killing four people at a furniture store in this small town in Mississippi. Samara Freemark is a senior producer for the podcast In the Dark from APM Reports, and her team has a new investigation about the Flowers case. He was sent to death row, but that conviction was actually just the start of things for Curtis Flowers because since 1997, Flowers has been tried a total of six times for those murders. He successfully appealed his conviction three of those times. Two of the trials have ended in hung juries where the juries couldn't decide on a verdict. But the prosecutor in the case, who's been the same prosecutor the whole way through, he's a a white man named Doug Evans. Evans just kept trying this case again. And again and again. And now Flowers' latest conviction from 2010 is on appeal at the U.S. Supreme Court. Oral arguments begin today. I sat down with Samara Freemark to talk about the investigation she and her team did into this case and what they found. But first, I had to ask the big question. How can someone be tried for the same crime six times? So this is generally a question we get a lot uh, when we tell people about this case. A lot of people hear that someone has been tried six times and they think, but wait a second, double jeopardy, that's not allowed. But the fact of the matter is that double jeopardy only applies if you've been acquitted of a crime. So if you're brought to trial and you're acquitted, the prosecutor can't charge you again. But Curtis Flowers has never been acquitted. He's only won his appeals or had juries hang. And so in that in that situation, the prosecutor constitutionally has every right in the world to just keep retrying him. And there's no limit, as far as we can tell, that says at a certain point you just have to stop. Uh, As far as what Doug Evans' motivations are, I think, um, you know, from his perspective, he thinks Curtis Flowers is guilty and he thinks he has a strong case. And so I think he he feels that it's his job as prosecutor to just keep trying this case until a conviction sticks. So what is the Supreme Court set to uh, decide here specifically? So the question that the justices are going to be considering has to do specifically with what happened in jury selection in that sixth trial in 2010. So in jury selection, both sides, both the defense and the prosecution, get a certain number of what are called peremptory strikes. And they can use those strikes to remove prospective jurors from the jury for almost any reason. But one reason that you cannot use is race. So you cannot strike a black juror because they are black. That's unconstitutional. 
And Doug Evans, who is the prosecutor in this case, has actually been caught doing exactly that, removing a black juror because they were black, in two of Curtis Flower's previous trials. And one of Curtis Flower's convictions was actually overturned because of it. So in the latest trial, uh, number six, Doug Evans used five of his six peremptory strikes against black prospective jurors. And the jury ended up being made up of 11 white people and one black person. Now, Evans and the state say that Doug Evans struck those people for constitutional reasons. You know, things like they worked with Curtis's relatives or they were late to court a couple of times. But Curtis's defense is saying, no, uh, Doug Evans was doing the same thing in the sixth trial that he was caught for previously, that he was striking those black prospective jurors because they were black. If Doug Evans had done this in the past and was caught doing it, why is he allowed to continue with this case? Because there's there's no rule that prevents it. You know, this is the, the remedy here is in the courts. So Curtis Flowers can say something has gone wrong in my case. And his remedy is to appeal to a higher court, to a state Supreme Court, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if they find he was right, that Doug Evans did make mistakes in the case, Curtis Flowers' remedy for that is he gets a new trial. And there's nothing in there that says there has to be a new prosecutor. So Doug Evans is the elected DA in that in that district. So he, he gets to keep trying it. Okay. So you looked at the case and decided to investigate. Tell us what you and your team were trying to find. So our involvement in this story started with a tip. Uh, we got a very short email from a woman who lived in Mississippi who said, you know, there's a man here who's been tried six times for the same crime and the evidence against him seems iffy at best. And to us, the most interesting part of that tip was the the six trials part, because we had that same reaction that you did, which was six trials. This, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem possible. And so we went into, into it with this question, uh, essentially, of what is going on here? Like, how did this person, Curtis Flowers, come to be tried six times by the same prosecutor? And answering that question ended up entailing a huge amount of reporting into every aspect of the case. So we really looked at everything every bit of evidence that the DA presented in those six trials to juries. Our team spent a year, more than a year, reporting on this case. And by the time we were done, we had really found that a lot of this evidence um, didn't hold up to scrutiny. But then you found something else out about Evans in his office. Tell us about that. So we knew that Doug Evans had this history in the Curtis Flowers trials of striking black jurors at higher rates than he struck white jurors. That's in the record. We're very familiar with that. But that led us to this larger question, which is, what is Doug Evans doing in all of the other cases that his office has tried? Because he's been uh, – Doug Evans has been the prosecutor in this district since 1991. So he's tried hundreds of cases or his office has tried hundreds of cases. So we had this very specific question, like what is going on in jury selection in all of these other cases? It it turned out that answering that question was a huge challenge. It took months and months of work. We had a reporter who had to go courthouse to courthouse in all of the eight courthouses of Doug Evans' district and, and track down all of these paper transcripts of jury selection in all of these trials. Um, and these, these things were stored in all kinds of weird places, like there were some in this old abandoned men's bathroom or in a former jail, a storage container. So she had to track down all these transcripts and scan them all. And, and at the end of it, I believe she scanned, I think, 115,000 pages of documents. And so then we took all of this information, all of these scans, and we gave them to our data reporter. And our data reporter spent about three months coding all that data, entering it into a huge spreadsheet, developing a methodology with some statisticians, 
and running the numbers on this. And at the end of that, months and months later, uh, we had an answer, which is that Doug Evans was striking black potential jurors in his district at four and a half times the rate that he struck white potential jurors. What could Evans face? Could he pay for this in any way? I mean, again, there is there is no there's no penalty for the prosecutor in this. So even if the Supreme Court um, hears this case and decides that Doug Evans has struck black jurors because they're black in violation of the U.S. Constitution, if they rule in Curtis's favor and they say Evans is at fault here, what happens after that is that the case is back where it's been so many times before. It's back in the hands of, of the district attorney, Doug Evans, and he'll get to decide what to do with it. And he'll, he'll get to decide whether he wants to try it for a seventh time. What do you want people to understand about this case specifically and about this reporting? Because this does seem like a pretty unique case for the Supreme Court to take up. Yeah, it's not the kind of case that the Supreme Court usually looks at. It's it's uh, we've talked to a lot of experts about 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 it. And, you know, this case is not this is not a Bush v. Gore. This is not a Roe v. Wade. This is this is not a case with huge national implications. Um, it seems to be a pretty what, what they call a fact bound case, a case that really is about what happened in this one particular courtroom in this one particular trial, which, again, is, is not the kind of case the Supreme Court usually looks at. Um, but I think that it, it does have I, it, it gets to all of these larger issues in the criminal justice system. Like we hope that our reporting and that the Supreme Court's taking of this case encourage people to take a look at what their prosecutors are doing in jury selection. Hurtful a little, Hurtful bit, a little to, bit to to figure to out figure that somebody, somebody working, working for a school, school kind of feels that way and is working for something like that. On Eyewitness News, this exclusive. Completely inappropriate. Um, yeah, I, I thought there was a little bit of irony there. Remaining calm in the face of vulgar and racist comments only on Channel 3. We're hearing from the police dispatcher who took the first call from that woman caught on camera using a racial slur and spitting at a black family in a grocery store. Channel 3 New Haven Bureau Chief Matt McFrone is live in East Haven now with all the details and that exclusive interview. Matt? Well, Dennis, after the incident here at the East Haven shop, right, the woman called police, mistakenly calling police in Easton and not East Haven, repeating that racial slur and continuing to swear, this time at a dispatcher who just happens to be black. Easton, please. For the past five years, Andrew Tisdale says he's had his fair share of interesting calls working as a dispatcher. I didn't really even think about it anymore until I saw it in the news the next day. And I kind of realized, and the two clicked, and I was like, wow, that was the same lady who I spoke with last night. That lady would be Corinne McGovern Tyrone, the woman who was caught on camera spitting at and hurling the N-word at a black family last Friday inside the ShopRite in East Haven. And this black guy got up in front of me and said, are you talking to me? And I said, no, I'm not. And now they're telling me I'm racial profiling. McGovern Tyrone wanted to call East Haven police to file a complaint herself. I'm sorry, and Got up in front of me. No, no, don't put, don't you dare put me on hold. Don't you dare. But instead, first called Easton with Andrew calmly handling the call. Okay, what so town are you I'm in, ma'am? You're not in Easton. We don't have a stop and shop. So, what town East are you Haven, in? East Haven. Okay, you you called Easton. All right. It was just kind of like a shock and awe factor of the comments that she was saying was very inappropriate and very vulgar. I think they're words that no one should ever say or should ever talk about another person 
in that way. We stopped by the New Haven address McGovney Tyrone gave East Haven police, but once again, no answer, with a neighbor saying she left following the incident. After the video became viral, she resigned from her job as a clerk for the Hamden Public School District. As for Andrew, while hearing the word is hurtful and bothersome, he took the whole call in stride, making sure he was doing his job. We're trained to kind of just, at the moment, focus on the situation, focus on their concern and their safety and make sure they're all right before you can even think about the profanity or the vulgar language that they're using. Now, Easton police tell us someone actually called the department today to compliment the way the dispatcher handled that call. Little did they know they were actually speaking to Andrew. Here in East Haven, uh, they say that they still aren't able to charge her in this incident because they say the family that was being targeted inside the supermarket, well, they still haven't come forward to file a complaint. And they say that is what they need. We're live with the mobile newsroom in East Haven. Matt McFarland, Channel 3 Eyewitness News. Okay. When are we as black people going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role, slave obey your master, turn the other cheek. Make certain you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. Tension in the room as the judge read the jury's verdict aloud. Also guilty on count two, failure to perform duties of a driver. Intimidation in the second degree, a hate crime. The prosecution arguing this was a racially motivated murder. Members of Larnell Bruce Jr.'s family burst into tears hugging each other. Bruce's biological mother, Christina Mines, overwhelmed by the outcome. I feel one. I'm so happy. After two and a half years, a conviction. Because of his decisions, we, we, we suffered. We're, we were suffering for the rest of our lives. In August, Russell Courtier was with his girlfriend, Colleen Hunt, when he got in a fight with Bruce outside a 7-Eleven in the Rockwood neighborhood of Gresham. The prosecutor says Bruce tried to run away when Courtier chased him in Hunt's Jeep, running him down. Prosecution argues Courtier is a member of the white supremacist prison gang, European Kindred. And that's why he ran down Bruce after losing the fight to the black teen. I, I forgive him, yes. But I don't forget. At a Don't Shoot Portland gathering a few hours after court Tuesday, Mine said her son was brutally murdered. He had a lot of love. He had a lot, a lot to give. He had a future, and it was taken away at the hands of somebody who was taught hate. Today, the first in her path toward closure. He was taken, and I'm sad, and I'm really sad in that aspect. But justice was served today. Justice was served today. Hunt pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter last week, and the court has not set sentencing dates for either Hunt or Courtier yet. Back to you. Morgan Romero with the latest. Thank you. Seven days after Cyclone Edai hit Mozambique near the port of Beira, aid agencies say they are in a race against time to get food, shelter and clothing to survivors. So far, 200 people have been confirmed dead in Mozambique, along with another 100 in neighbouring Zimbabwe and 50 in Malawi. But the numbers could rise. From Beira, Pumza Filani reports. A glimmer of hope as rescue workers 
rush out of a helicopter carrying children in their arms, eyes wide with fear. They are the lucky ones to make it to safety before their villages were washed away. More than 100,000 are still feared missing. Rescue efforts are slow and no small task to arrange. It's only now that the scale of the disaster is becoming apparent. Inside this international airport in Beira, aid agencies are working around the clock to get resources to where they are needed most. It's a difficult task. Communication services are down, the roads have been cut off, and we are hearing reports that some communities are now completely inaccessible. We drive through what remains of the city, the first sign of destruction, a school. From the outside, now only a shell. Inside, the desks are splintered into pieces and classroom floors flooded. The roof has completely come off. The metal sheets are mangled and tangled on the ground. That creaking sound that you hear is a metal sheet that's just holding on by the last few nails. Still very early days. People are still reeling from the destruction that happened here over the last few days. In another part of town, some people are trying to salvage what they can. Everyone we come across now is begging us to go into their homes. They want to show us what's happened. We're in Munyava. It's one of the worst hit areas. We're the first people they've seen since the cyclone hit. They tell me they have no food. Some of them don't have shelter. They don't know where they're going to sleep tonight. Here in Beira, the rain is still falling and there's no electricity. And it's still unclear how many people have died. The water levels are still rising and there's an uneasy feeling that help will not reach many in time. Pomza Filani in Beira. One of the biggest worries is the spread of waterborne diseases such as cholera and typhoid. Hazel Niathi, who's in Malawi for the charity World Vision, says hundreds of thousands of people are in danger. They are without shelter, they are without food, they are without clean water, they are without sanitation services. So we fear... Uh, of an outbreak of disease because of this situation. Child safety is also a matter of concern as we are seeing people cramped in makeshift spaces that are not meant to accommodate the numbers of people who have been displaced by the cyclone Idai. Matthew Cochran is from the Red Cross. He says aid agencies are working with the authorities to do what they can. The coordination in Borough Understand is is quite effective. All the international organisations and, and most importantly the government and, and organisations like the Mozambique Red Cross are headquartered together at, at the airport. So that proximity allows for a close dialogue, close contact to make sure that assessments are shared, that organisations are aware of what others are, are focusing on and so there's not an unnecessary uh, duplication. Well, I spoke to our senior Africa correspondent Anne Soy in Maputo, capital of Mozambique, where aid is being collected. Inside a warehouse at the seaport, and there are so many volunteers here, very busy. They're bringing food, they're bringing water, clothes, uh, plastic utensils. All that is being packed here and then transported into containers that are waiting outside the warehouse. All that will be shipped up north to assist the affected families. Yeah, and, and will they be able to get the, uh, the ship to, those, uh, to that area that's been affected? What they know is that they can get the ship to Beirut. Now, what happens after the ship docks, they don't know because the infrastructure, as we understand, has been destroyed. But they're saying that the aid effort here will continue. They're mobilizing support through social media. There's so many volunteers here. They don't work together usually, but they've just come together to form 
um, something to keep things going. And today I'm told that so many people showed up and some of them had to be turned away just to ensure that everything runs efficiently. Because people in Beira are, are starting to feel desperate. It's, it's nearly a week since they were hit by that cyclone. That's right. And here in Maputo, um, the, the volunteers feel their pain. They're doing what they can to assist them. Aid organizations, including the World Food Programme uh, and other organizations, are also to, to organize, to deliver to those affected. But the logistical challenges on the ground in Beira are immense. We understand that WFP has been doing airdrops to the people who have been cut off by water completely. So they're doing all they can to keep people alive. Um, there are people who are trapped, uh, we were told, on top of the, the roofs of their houses who need to be rescued. So it is a major disaster. Nothing like this has been seen in this country before. And Soy in the Mozambican capital, Maputo. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 23rd, 2019. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have comments, questions, suggestions. The number 641 715 three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate a few things before we get started they said this week not only beginning of spring as they say full moon worm moon as i was told explanation given was that it's spring temperature is rising and the worms in the ground they can sense the warming temperature and they begin making their way to the surface that's the explanation that i was given but uh lots of happenings this week it was gorgeous it was like wow welcome to spring the weather was amazing uh for the entire week i hope people took advantage to get outside uh get some sunshine some vitamin d some exercise wow what an amazing introduction uh to spring and i hope that people have been getting their rest i know with the time change and the full moon the full moon can disrupt sleep talked about that with dr cambon time change certainly can disrupt your sleep make sure you're getting your rest go to bed uh, you do not want to be doing a lot of frolicking late night go ahead and get your rest uh, so that your body can adjust and you can be full of vitality along with the warm weather. Speaking of warm weather, vitality, exercise, and summer fun, it does indeed look like we will have enough people. We will be having the Cows 2019 10-year anniversary retreat in California, unless something catastrophic uh, has happened. It does look like uh, we have enough folks uh, and might have uh, one, two, few slots uh, left. Uh, folks are looking to sign up, uh, but looking forward to hanging out in California 
for July 3rd through July 7. Deadline for the $600 deposit is tomorrow. You should definitely check in because uh, we have had enough people that does look like we are getting close to the max spot. I said 13 uh, was the max spot. So if you're listening, I know we have some people who are listening to the archives. Uh, you can drop in email to make sure that we have not sold out uh, by tomorrow. But drop an email. You can confirm uh, we are accepting, uh, unless we get full, accepting uh, folks until March 24. That would be Sunday. $600 deposit is due. You can PayPal uh, or if you want to do a money order and all that, I reckon that would be all right. Uh, and then the final 350 is June 7th. Uh, there's a blog post with all of the information. I have, I think, successfully emailed everyone who has uh, queried me about said yoga retreat in Lake Arrowhead, California. Again, you would need to be flying into the Ontario airport or looking at flying into the Ontario airport, not LAX, uh, to get to Lake Arrowhead uh, and or driving to the eastern part, southeastern part of the state. We are not near the coastline, Lake Arrowhead. But super excited, super looking forward to hanging out in California, doing some yoga, plant-based meals, workshops on racism, white supremacy, workshops on plant-based eating, cooking. Hopefully it will be constructive times. Uh, should, at minimum, should be a substantial constructive, uh, in my opinion, change over the typical July 4th antics. We shall see, but that'll be something that folks can, you know, at least for the future. Uh, in addition, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, you will see said blog post, very first one at the page with all the details, pics uh, about the yoga retreat if you need any more information. But in the top right corner, PayPal button, much obliged to all the folks who have kept us on the air for a decade. Uh, if you have invested over the years, you are part of why we are here and Make sure that you check your history. If you just uh, have contributed more than once, spectacular. We are super appreciative, hopefully worthy of your repeated investments. Uh, but you should check your history. I did update my uh, PayPal earlier this year, I think at the beginning of February. So just to make sure that you do not have the old PayPal address, uh, it is updated uh, in the description to this broadcast uh, and on my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. If you're not into PayPal, you can just drop an email and we can get you a physical mailing address. Also, linked at my blog, my Amazon wish list under Gus T. Renegade. Enormous gratitude to all the listeners who have nabbed items over the past 10 years. Again, I hope the cows has been, continues to be worthy of your time energy, life, currency. Wowee. A few things to touch on before we get to listeners. Uh, 
what a massive week of racism, white supremacy, and yoga. That will have to be a whole broadcast uh, at some point once everything is updated. But wow. Again, yoga has confirmed uh, all of my views on white supremacy, racism, what it means to be classified as white, and the role of the white woman in practicing racism. Hmm. Wow, okay. We are still connected. That is uh, fascinating. I just heard that noise in the background. But yes, uh, practicing yoga has confirmed all of Gus T's views on white supremacy, racism. There will be more, much, much more to report on that as we proceed. I can give you one about my counter-racist t-shirt. It was so warm in Seattle this week. How warm was it? It was so warm that I was able to break out and have on just my counter-racist t-shirt. I have been covered. I still wear it to every yoga class. That's my uniform. That's where I was going. Had on my counter-racist t-shirt. I'm on the light rail. Thomas told me uh, not to call it the train. Uh, I was on the light rail uh, coming back from yoga class, and there was a black male victim. Uh, He was also on the link rail, and he saw my shirt, and he said, oh, And he starts laughing and he says, you know, that is not going to serve you in the long run. He just talks and talks and talks. That's not going to serve you. It's not going to serve you. You know, you love everybody. I have white people that I just love and they love me. He's just talking, 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 talking. Yeah, that's you need to get rid of it. That's not going to serve you in the long run. And I thought, okay, okay, okay. And I get off VGQ. Victims guaranteed qualify. It's not an argument, but he was very perfect. We were not exactly close on the train. Like, I don't want to. We were. There was at least two meters uh, between us, at least two yards, maybe more than that. Like we were not, you know, seated closely at all. Uh, But anyway, that was one with the cap. Please treat me like I am a white person uh, T-shirt. I now have multiple because I have several of those shirts. And then I have my uh, cows, Virginia yoga retreat. Woo! The Coon Man shirt, which I love. How often do you get to wear a shirt with a Klansman on it? That is counter-racist in nature. Come on. Anywho, uh, some of the folks who uh, were not at the Virginia retreat but did want a shirt got their uh, shirts and uh, they thought it was a a hoot of a design as well. Right on. Next, uh, regarding some of the audio segments that were heard, the segment where they were talking about the school resource officer and who has affiliated with the alt-right white terrorist organizations, uh, white identity extremist. They were talking about him towards the end of the segment, and they said uh, they were they were rejecting him. They were distancing this fella, saying, "Oh man, yeah, we're not. He doesn't represent us, and we're not going to employ anyone who has a predisposition of bias." They didn't say racism. They said predisposition of bias, intolerance. That was another word that they used. Nobody could say, oh, no, we don't. We do not employ anybody. You practice racism, white supremacy, and you are out or not even out of here. You're not going to get in the door to begin with because we don't hire racists. We don't hire white identity extremists. We can't even be explicit in talking about the problem or whites regularly that's why we end up with concepts like white privilege and white fragility deliberately not calling things by their proper 
name. And matter of fact, that came up repeatedly in the segment. I'm skipping around a little bit. Uh, so going to the segment, this was Elizabeth Waskin. She's with the Washington Post. She was in the interview where they were talking about the New Zealand shooting and how fast the video content of this another white identity extremist uh, going out and shooting non-white people, Muslims, while they're worshiping in the church Dylan Roof style uh, in New Zealand last week. She said they they were talking about how the videos were going up so fast that they couldn't take them down. And I thought that was important. To me, that shows the dedication. That's that word again from the definition. That is dedication. Our fingers are flying across the scene, screen, swiping and uploading this racist content. We got live Actual snuff fleet, uh, flicks. Race soldier doing work. Oh, can't upload it fast enough. I can't share it fast enough. That's what you're telling. That's dedication. Tremendous illustration. Overwhelmed Facebook. We spent all this money and the race soldiers have overwhelmed us. That lets me know a lot about what it means to be white. But the important point was they got to the end of that segment and they said so. That was from PBS. They said so. To Miss Waskin, suspected racist. So you mean we spent all this money or Facebook, you know, all these social media sites, they spent all this money, made all these promises about boosting technology so that this sort of thing doesn't happen. Do you think they can say that this sort of thing won't happen again? And her answer was, she says. They couldn't say no to that. This is a journalist. She works for The Washington Post. You are skilled with the use of words. That is what they call a double negative. Why not just say when she asks, are you saying they spent all this money and they're still overwhelmed by our racists? Yep. Make it plain. Make it plain. And they they say that in English. That's like basic elementary. Like you don't have to be a valedictorian. You can, you know, get through elementary school with a C and you will probably be aware. Oh, yeah. No double negatives. Don't want to confuse people. Uh, Continue. Stay right in line. Call things by their proper names. So they're talking about Mr. Curtis Flowers down in Mississippi. Six times <laughs> the great state of Mississippi. Uh, Mr. Curtis Flowers case. So they Doug Evans, suspected race soldier, the prosecutor. So they're talking about his efforts to exclude black people from the jury. Long practice in the system of white terrorism. Keep the Negras off the jury. So Mr. Evans has been doing this six trials worth, it seems, of keeping the niggers off the jury. And so these get classified as mistakes. That was the term that was used in the segment. Mistakes. That's how they're viewed. It's not, hey, Mr. Evans, you are practicing racism, white supremacy at, at minimum, even if all right. It's Mississippi. Fine. You get to go try the nigger again. Fine, Mr. Evans. You know, go back. Do it a seventh time. But at minimum, let's use the correct. We're not going to say that Mr. Evans, Prosecutor Evans, is making mistakes here. It's somehow he is he's just a little ignorant. Can't seem to figure out a way to, you know, keep the niggers on it. <laughs> he's practicing racism. Now, go ahead for the seventh time and we'll see if we can get uh, Mr. Flowers, you know, and make it stick, as they say. Another metaphor. Uh, let's see. <laughs> When they talked, uh, the report, the white woman, race soldier, so important. I don't know if Ivy uh, is listening live or not. Long time listener, investor. 
talks about repeatedly white people are not afraid of niggers, unless we're talking about white genetic annihilation, which is totally different. I don't generally hear people reference that when they talk about whites being afraid of niggers. Now, that white woman in the department store, I believe it was Target, that commenced to spitting on a black family, not just one black person, a whole family of black people, commenced to spitting on them and call it. She didn't have an army behind her or with her. I didn't see her pull out a firearm. She did not look intimidated in the least. Race soldier. I'm right here, nigra. I was not talking to you, nigra. Let me call this nigra on the phone. Look back up. I mean, she did not look scared at all. That's what whites are extremely dangerous. That sort of thing should be kept in mind. If that happens to be you and you get involved in some sort of uh, incident like that, because I'm sure the family, the black family, the victims, I'm sure they did not plan to have this, you know, contact with this race soldier at the store. These sort of things can happen five seconds. We've talked about this for years. That's how white supremacy racism operates. All of us need to be mindful uh, of that when these sort of incidents uh, start. Uh, In my view, if you're a victim of racism, white supremacy, you are in a vulnerable position. Now, when uh, that uh, race soldier began spitting on him and calling him a nigger and some depends on which jurisdiction you're in. Some places you spit on somebody. That's simple assault. Maybe it is there. They said they haven't filed a report. That's why I mentioned this whole thing to begin with. Uh, But she spits on him and, you know, all the rest of it assaults him. If he had punched her. Who knows? You could have armed race soldiers that what nigga punched a white woman. Let's get him. Enforcement officials could have seen that and been on the scene off duty. How many times does that happen? Could have been an off duty uh, enforcement officer. Nigga hit a white woman. Bang. Anything could happen in those sort of situations. I'm of the opinion. And I've seen enough of these as well, where the black person, the victim, they pull out the phone. And this all it does is intensify the racism, white supremacy of the white person. They just get even more riled up like, oh, this nigger is going to film you. Let me give you something to film, nigger. The, uh, it was a white woman in Chicago. She did the exact same thing. She spit on a whole family uh, of black people. I think she struck them as well. I think they did uh, call the police in that situation. She did get charged. They filed a report and did the correct thing. But keep that in mind. These racists are extremely dangerous. Uh, sometimes it is best distance. You can call the enforcement officials, do your report, Distance. I am not going to be cursing, engaging, distance, defend yourself if you need to, but I'm not looking to have a long verbal altercation with someone who is dangerous and belongs to a race dedicated to violence and terrorism against black people, non-white people in total. But file a report. That was the whole reason that I mentioned that segment. File a report when the cows began at the University of Washington's Rainy Dog radio station in 2007. One incident that I will always remember, it was on Rugby Road uh, right here. Not right, is that right? The uh, frat row right here uh, at the University of Washington. There was a white fraternity. They were throwing uh, projectiles at non-white I, don't, I was going to say students, but they may not have been students, uh, pedestrians, as they were walking by the residence. And the police were called, the victims, they tried to get away, obviously, to protect themselves. Uh, the police were called to the scene. No arrests were made. No charges were made. Uh, I called the 
police department and I talked to them for about 20 minutes about this incident. And they gave me all the details, where the house was, who called it in, all the rest of it. And he said over and over again, nobody called this in. If the people, the victims, the non-white people uh, who were being assaulted, if they had just called the police, bang, we know where this was. We could go and charge them with something, but nobody called it in. He said, kept, what did he keep saying? We have to have a victim. He said that about 10 times during the course of the phone conversation. We can't make a charge if we don't have a victim. We have to have a victim. If they had called in, if you know them and can get them to call in, we can charge them because we know the people were. We got witnesses. We have to have a victim. And I said that it was significant because at the time I was being chided a lot by non-white people. Oh, what do you mean you're a victim? calling yourself that's defeat i was being and it 10 years or it's been what now 12 years uh since then i still hear non-white people being admonished by other victims i won't say victim being admonished by other non-white people i am not a victim and you shouldn't call yourself a victim either the enforcement official that i spoke with and the enforcement officer that you just heard from File a report. You got to. Yes, I am a victim of a crime and I want to report that as loudly as I possibly can so that we can charge the perpetrator, investigate and handle all of this properly because I have been victimized. Absolutely. Just following logic. The enforcement official, incidentally, the one that I spoke with after he talked to me literally for about 20 minutes and said about 10 times, we have to have a victim. He said, what is your interest in all of this? Why are you calling about this? And I said, well, I saw it on the news, which I did. Uh, and I live in this area, which at the time I did uh, live in the U uh, university district. And I said, I walk uh, down this road about every day, which at the time I did. <laughs> I said, it concerns me. It could have been me uh, getting objects thrown uh, at me while I was out walking on the road. And he said, oh, well, you know, this sort of thing happens all the time. I don't even know why this is surprising. Another illustration, that's why I'll never forget that, or many reasons why I'll never forget that phone call. But again, illustration, dedication to the system of racism, white supremacy, throwing objects at niggers or non-white people, period. That's, you know, <laughs> what is it? Dogs bark? Birds chirp? Let's see. Mm. Uh, the... Let's, I had one more, or I guess two more notes, but I will save those. Uh, we say consistently, or I say consistently, uh, for this broadcast only, compensatory call-in, if we could not use metaphors, uh, race soldiers regularly, uh, they will employ analogies, similes, comparisons uh, to confuse non-white people about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. Uh, often they will insist that two separate entities are identical, equivalent. And many times that is not the case at all. All of this is a part of being a master deceiver, a wordsmith, as they say, victims of racism, myself included. We have been exposed to this misconduct for centuries. And many of us, we are still learning uh, sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our thoughts, so we will substitute a metaphor. And frequently that's that just contributes to a lot more confusion. Sometimes it's OK to just say, you know, I need to take a little bit more time 
to configure my words. I will report back after I've given it some thought. That is totally permissible and, in my view, generally makes this person sound pretty intelligent. Like, I am not going to just talk when I have not thought about what I want to say. Let me take some time to think first, and then I will share. Who can argue with that? Anywho, I will prompt uh, about the metaphors on this broadcast. Thank you kindly. If you take about five minutes to share whatever thoughts you have, uh, questions or suggestions, that would be grand. Uh, that just makes sure everybody gets at least one opportunity to speak. And I'm sure we'll have additional time if you have another question or thought uh, that you want to get in. Uh, the number again, 641 715 Four zero, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Oh my goodness! How could I? I I apologize. I was going right to the callers. I'm bound. The clip that had the greatest impact on me: the storm on the continent. Super important. Many, all of the clips, really. Mr. Flowers, super important. Certainly in vitro fertilization. Pregnant moms behind bars. They lock up lots of black female mothers, black females, period, black people, period. All the segments touched on really important aspects of uh, white terrorism. The segment that we started with about the importance of reading. Wow. Dr. Fran as soon as I heard that, Dr. Francis Cresswell, I wish that I could have played that entire segment for her and heard her thoughts. If you are an attempted counter-racist parent, that is a part right there. Before we hit the bedroom, have we started working on our library for our offspring and the books that we're going to be reading together with them? For the first 15 years of their existence, these are the type of things that we start, you know, should be conversing about before you hit the bedroom. I mean, if we're serious about solving this problem and, you know, the 200 questions and all of that, put that on the list. Reading. If we have counter racist, uh, attempted counter racist parents who are with us live, are you spending time reading with your child? question. If you are an attempted counter-racist parent, cannot be a spectator. I would like to hear input on this one. Are you reading if your child is 12, 15, 14, 8, 7, 5? Are you reading with your child and reading content about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, that everything about it, the time reading that you're spending uh, with contact with your child and how important it is for young children to be having contact, physical contact with a loving, nurturing caregiver, parent, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, how many lap times she talked about that. I thought about her presence so much listening to that report. Reading is more important than watching television because I know a lot of folks, myself included, can sit on the couch and Netflix it up with the family. Do it up. Reading together. 
and reading about racism, white supremacy. Mm. Pivotal. If you are an attempted counter-racist parent, required, no spectating. Uh, Are you reading with your child? Are you reading counter-racist content? And if you're not, it's no judgment because I get an F for attempted counter-racist parenting. I'm not even doing that. No children. Uh, But, or I won't even say F, I am failing because I'm not even attempting at that effort. Uh, But if it's something that you're not doing, if you could share what are some of the difficulties, what are some of the things, you know, if not having access to books that you think would be constructive or time, whatever, uh, things make it difficult to engage in this activity, that would be good to hear too. Uh, But I thought that was hugely important. Uh, Dr. Francis Cresswell, again, if, you know, folks that say they appreciate what she had to say, that is something Dr. Francis Cresswellsing. Mm. I think she would want us to pay a lot of attention to what was said in that segment. And I'll just say what she said before we get to the callers. Reading is more important than watching television. Star six one, if you would like to participate. Can I be heard? Uh, Greetings, Henry in Chicago. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, the, what you just mentioned a few minutes ago was going to be my first uh, comment, uh, uh, your first uh, recording in regards to uh, reading to your children. Uh, I am a, a parent, or what you call an attempted parent, uh, but I have been reading to my daughter since she was conceived, uh, even in the womb, uh, me and my wife, you know, read to her. Uh, we read to her when she was an infant, uh, even up to now. Uh, she's, uh, uh, she's, she's basically kind of reading on her own, but uh, now my wife is kind of uh, guiding her in her reading. And uh, the book she's reading now is called One Crazy Summer by Rita Williams Garcia. Uh, it's in regards to uh, three black uh, girls, uh, uh, in the 1968, uh, in Oakland. And it has some, it has, you know, it has a couple of, uh, 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 things about racism, uh, in, in it. So, uh, it's something, uh, something constructive, but, uh, for her age, but, uh, she's 12. Uh, but the thing is, is that, uh, it's very important to do this. I find a lot of non-white black young mothers, who don't take the time to read to their children. Uh, I remember I was, uh, when my daughter was three, uh, just like with, you know, some, some children, uh, she was having uh, normal conversations with people. Uh, but I remember there was a, there was a, a boy uh, who was her age, uh, non uh, white black, uh, black boy who was her age at three, and he can hardly talk. And um, when I was asking the mother, uh, who was uh, in her early 20s, if she read to her child, uh, she said that uh, she wouldn't, he wouldn't understand what I was telling, her, telling him. And uh, I had to tell her, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, my daughter wasn't understanding, you know, some things before she was one, but I was still reading to her. 
So, you know, I always encourage the, you know, non-white, uh, non-white black young mothers to please read to your children, whether they understand it or not, just read to them. Um, uh, St. Patrick's Day, uh, the day uh, racists uh, wear green, uh, it's a big thing in Chicago. Uh, there was, there's a big Southside Irish Day parade that happens here, uh, and it, it happens on the South Side. In between the neighborhoods of Morgan Park, Beverly, and Mount Greenwood, I think that's a, a neighborhood that I've mentioned before on this show. It is a sundown town-type neighborhood. Uh, and what happened was, uh, there was a, uh, there was a stick, there were stickers, uh, tw- there was at least about 20 stickers along the Southside Irish Day Parade, uh, of, of, of a white supremacist group, uh, American identity movement. And so, uh, it's no surprise, uh, that those stickers would be there, but, you know, what was, what was so interesting was, how whites were, oh wow, what is this? You know, we don't we don't condone this and and and, and I'm sitting here thinking like uh that is a huge parade and if nobody spotted, you know, whoever posted these stickers during the parade, you know, I'm 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 not I'm not really believing it. So um and uh lastly I am on the third week of plant-based eating, and I want to say what I ate today. Uh, I had uh, steel-cut oatmeal with uh, apples. Uh, I had um, uh, I had a or I had some organic coffee with uh, no dairy, uh, with no uh, dairy and sugar. I also had today. Um, I also had today. I had lots of water today. And I also uh let me see what else did I have. Oh I had a um I had a uh uh kale kale greens with uh, onions and tomatoes from a uh from a uh black uh black owned uh, vegan restaurant here in Chicago, uh so vegetarian. Uh so and then I also had uh nuts as well. And uh one thing that I, I have noticed with me is in three weeks, I've lost 10 pounds, and that is with no exercise involved at all. So uh, it is, it, I mean, it, it does make a difference. Uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Wow. Amazing. I'm so glad uh, to hear that. I mean, losing 10 pounds, I don't know. Is that is that a bad thing for you? Are you, you know, about to, to wither away uh, now, or was the losing 10 pounds okay? No, the 10 pounds was, was good. Um, I, had a, I had a checkup uh, about a month ago, uh, and my doctor, who is a, uh, who is a uh, non-white black uh, female doctor, uh, suggested that I lose some weight because uh, I had a high cholesterol level and also my, uh, my hemoglobin was getting close towards pre-diabetes level. So it, 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 was, a, it was a big help. Wow. Absolutely spectacular. Um, that is the best thing that I've heard today. Uh, well, aside from it looking like us being able to do the California yoga retreat five days and four nights worth of plant-based eating and yoga. 
Uh, but that is amazing. Uh, black owned establishment, vegan meal, lots of water. Come on. Minus 10 pounds uh, at highest commendation, sir, uh, Henry in Chicago. I hope you uh, keep it up. Sounds like you're feeling good. I know vegan diet, no cholesterol in a vegan diet. So anyone, if you have cholesterol problems, there you go. Not medication and whites. They will just cram all kinds of medication in there. Boop, boop, boop. Not solving the problem at all. But we will just get you on all kinds of tablets until you die. Uh, but you could just change kale. Broccoli, Brussels sprouts, no cholesterol, eat healthy, eat well, and the reading, that is uh, spectacular. I'm so happy to hear. Uh, And reading in the womb, Mr. Edward Williams Jr. uh, talked about that as well, reading uh, to his offspring while they were still in the womb and reading them, Mr. Fuller's code book, reading them content about racism, white supremacy. So absolutely. Uh, Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up again, if you are a uh, parent, no spectating on this here evening, are you reading to your child? Folks we've not heard from, proceed. May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Nevada. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you for taking my call. I don't know if you um, if you wanted parents to go first. If so, I can wait. Oh, no, it's not a hierarchy with that. We can just, you know, folk, people can uh, share. Parents can share on that as we proceed. All right. Um, I definitely agree with the importance of reading. I read to um, my little cousin. And it does actually help. I know there was one, the segment about reading. They spoke about um, reading a certain book to pieces. And the one book that my little cousin, she liked to read a lot was um, Please, Baby, Please. And then it got to the point to where you could no longer even tell the words or see the words or whatever. Um, So, yes, I definitely think that that's important. And then one thing I noticed because I have been trying to work a a few extra hours recently is just staring at a computer screen. It actually has been, has made me nauseous. Um, I had worked 12 hours one day and when I was done, I felt like I had a headache and it was not just me. It was another non-white person that I was around who did the same thing. It made me like nauseous and I had a headache. It was, I don't know, I just didn't feel my normal I just didn't feel like like how I would normally feel after just working eight hours. So I definitely understand the importance of, you know, not consistently, you know, staring at a screen. Uh, the other thing was just about the the clips. There's one, there's, uh, I actually wanted to bring up one of the clips talking about how there's, they, uh, they wanted to count, um, women, pregnant women in jails, and they mentioned the great state of Ohio. So I was actually, I think a while back, I don't know if I had mentioned it on the program or not, but there's this one jail or prison in Ohio that specifically caters to women who are, they actually have their children while they're in prison. It's called the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. And also, just to let you know some demographics of Marysville, it's around 90% white. 
So I don't know if that makes a difference, but of course they can always ship Negras into uh, mainly white areas. But there was an article about uh, women living with babies inside Ohio prisons. It's dated May 14, 2017, and it has uh, a white woman and her son. Um, it's, I guess it's like the featured participants. The other thing was actually some things that um, happened here in Las Vegas. So on, it was actually three days ago in the paper, there was a, a they spoke about, once again, the largest or one of the most recent white-on-white crimes, uh, predominantly white-on-white crimes, the October 1st shooting, and they were talking about how they didn't know what there's a, a debate over the guns, what are they going to do with the guns that Stephen uh, Paddock used in the shooting. And it just, I bring this up because I know how we frequently talk about how suspected racists, they can resolve problems very quickly. They just choose not to. And one of the debate, because this is a debate, whether if they destroyed the guns, which he had, the guns were worth 62000 just in case, you know, I know some people are like, okay, we need to fight back with guns. One person, one white man had $62,000 worth of um, firearms and ammunition. But uh, the victims, they wanted to be, you know, destroyed. And then other victims, they are actually saying they're going to, they want to sue uh, the bump stock maker, makers because they lied on their firearms form. But anyways, one donor, one miscellaneous donor, they were going to put up the money. They were going to give the victims the money the, for the value of the guns. But that's still in debate. So that really made me think about how, you know, they, if they wanted to resolve debates, they have all these different anonymous donors, but they just choose not to, especially when it comes to the excuse of being, well, there's not enough money. That's a lie. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up was a recent uh, school shooting that was possibly uh, thwarted here. It was actually the high school would have been in like the, I would say the newer developed, like on the out, outer, um, outer ring, I guess, of Las Vegas. It was northeast, I'm sorry, northwest Las Vegas. It was at... Arborview High School, and this it was front page news on March 20th. Uh, the newspaper says racial threat rock school, and I just wanted to read one quote of one of these two students. I'm assuming they're white. They didn't actually point them out, or they didn't actually, you know, say that they were white men or not. But on their social media, it says. Um, I'll just read the paragraph. An Instagram account that appears to have been created specifically for threats said in a, I'm sorry, in a post Sunday, looking at my high school, I realized I need to cleanse the hallways. There are too many, and then it has racial slur. I don't know what it was. Too many racial slur in this school. We must act now. And then it also says the account included images of black students that appear to, to have been taken without their knowledge. So, uh, the students, they um, they were arrested on Tuesday, but they called it a racially motivated, racially motivated threat. Didn't say racism or racist, but racially motivated. And I'll mute my line. Thank you for allowing me to share. Mm. What did President Obama say? The white people, young whites, young children, 
to handle these issues better. That's what he says. She 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 snuck that one in. Did you hear Red in Vegas? She said one white man had sixty two thousand dollars in guns. She she snuck that in for for emphasis uh, for some reason, as though you know we weren't we weren't going to pay attention uh, to that comment. I thought that was important. One white man. I don't even think he was you know a particularly wealthy white man. Sixty two thousand dollars in guns. Hmm. Anywho, reading more important than watching television. Uh, I will say before we get to some of the other folks who uh, dialed in, we can do this in the same manner that the race soldiers who assault me and practice racism against me at the yoga studio uh, and or allow it to happen, uh, where they plan things out way in advance. We have not done that for the first two yoga retreats, looking like there will now be a second in California. All the rest of the yoga retreats that Gus T is involved with, they will be done the correct way. The first two, you know, it is a learning, still learning, as they say, a learning process. The rest of them will be planned correctly. So the tentative schedule, we already know, December. Uh, so since people know about that one so well in advance, whenever we set down like, OK, this is going to be. Uh, the deadline for when things are due and getting everything done, that one I suspect it will be pretty easy to get 13 people. Uh, unless we have a brawl or fisticuffs at the retreat in California uh, and or things happen in Florida. Uh, tentatively, the schedule that we are looking at, as I said, Florida, December 27, January 1, Texas, April 2020. Toronto, July 2020, Hawaii, December 2020. That last one, asterisk, camping trip, uh, because we had several folks who said, why can't we do a yoga camping trip? And I thought, hey, camping, Hawaii, for December. That would be grand on many levels, and it's easy to camp in Hawaii. So that is the tentative schedule for if things go well in California. That way it would be planned well in advance. So people that are in other parts of the world, I would like to hang out in Toronto. People that are in the New York area, Toronto, July, people are already looking at locations that are owned by black people in the Toronto area. We have cows listeners in the Toronto area make things very easy to plan it out in advance. And then we can do yoga, plant-based meals. We can have lots of folks talking about counter-racism and how eating vegan meals has helped them lose weight, be healthier, so they'll have more vitality to solve this problem immediately. But first, California. Other folks who have dialed in that we've not heard from, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I hope you're having a good evening. Wait, let me stop my timer. Okay. Okay, exactly. Um, you had a lot of. I wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, health. Um, the lady from the view, Whoopi Goldberg, she had been sick and she came back, and she was saying, "Now, this is a black person who 
a lot of people, even non-black people, know that she has some re- She, you know, believes that she has some financial resources. She was sick. The doctor recommended some type of machine. I guess the machine wasn't covered by her insurance right away, and she said that the patient advocate recommended some lesser quality machine, and she told the lady, she said, I could probably buy the machine. Get me the machine that I need. So just an example, doesn't matter the amount of money you had, because the only thing the advocate had to do was ask her, this is how much it costs, do you have the resources for it, yes or no? And she obviously did not do that, otherwise she wouldn't have to tell her, I could probably buy the machine, just give me the machine. So when you're black, the money, I guess, doesn't matter. Well, I guess we all believe that. And speaking of the in vitro fertilization, I think it's important Yes, it is important to talk about that, but in my limited experience and just hearing people who have that type of procedure, it's always with a husband or with the family, like that's something they plan to do. So I would appreciate if someone does have this discussion to not leave their husband out because if a baby is produced, you both are supposed to be raising it together. And to, again, be mindful, I think you talked about the planning, family planning, if I cannot have children, will this happen? And also, why is this happening? Because yes, you're having these miscarriages. Why is your Why is your body not accepting the baby? I mean, I'm not saying these people are in bad health because Michelle Obama doesn't look like she was ever in bad health. She could be. I don't know. But what are the things that are preventing? Is it you know like you talk about not eating having a plant based diet and healthy foods and getting nutrition to make sure your body is able to receive to receive the baby because i know a lot of times if you're thinking about having a baby they want you i think to increase your folate at least there are probably some other ones i've never had a baby nowhere close but i'm pretty sure the folate is important in terms of um having a baby so that's something that people should be thinking about. I'm about the reading. I'm not a parent, but as a child, as a person that's grown up who's over 40, I can tell you I don't remember learning how to read just like I don't remember learning how to walk and learning how to talk. That's how early my parents started making sure I know how to read and write and count. Like, I don't remember learning how to count. That's how young I was. When it happened, I don't remember learning how to read. That's how young it was when it happened. And I think that is the goal for for your children, to not have the memory of learning how. You want them to be like, oh, yeah, I've always known how to do this. Like, you know, like you've always known how to walk. Well, you know that's not true, but you feel like you've always known how to do that. You've always known how to talk. You've always known how to read. You've always known how to do that. So I think that is a goal that if you are a parent or aspiring parent, parents, excuse me, or attempted parent, you should have. That reading is so automatic that, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to read. Duh. Like, who doesn't? You don't be mean to other people that don't, but, you know, that's how important it should be. Thank you. Love it. Love it. Spectacular. And that was a major point of uh, Bernelia Randall in Dying While Black, that it doesn't matter if you have access to money that 
the coon man. I don't really know what I need to explain all that for. The coon man was on the shirt for the cow yoga retreat. The coon man. That's how you're going to see about the machine and diabetes and your blood pressure and cholesterol and all the rest of it. The coon man. Other folks who dialed in, if you have, uh, if we've not heard from you, line should be open. Can I be heard? I'm sorry. I know Lady you said first. that. I was one quick thing. Um, you got a shout out from the author of the book. I don't know if you saw that on a Black Talk Radio website. He's like, good work or something. If you find me from downtown, <laughs> send us. I'm telling you, it's on there. Ah, that's so funny. You have joined subconference number four. To return to your main conference, press pound star. You have joined the main conference. I guess I don't know where you went. Wow. I got thrown out of the program and put in a sub-conference like the music. It'll be, I'm going to leave it in the archives. People will be able to hear for the two seconds because I was just, I didn't press anything. I didn't. Anyway, so we got a shout out from uh, Mr. James Lowen suspected race. Wow. Because I think I've called him a suspected Have I, who are the people that have been listening to the book club? Have I called him a suspected racist? Have I referred to him as a suspected racist during the archives? We've done three sessions. Has anybody heard me call him a suspected racist or indict things that he's done in the book as practicing racism? I think so. This is yeah. Ivy. I'm in my line. Okay. That's, I think I have. I'm, I don't want to, you know, be saying things that are not true, but if people that, you know, have been following along with the book club, uh, sun, previously mentioned uh, sundown towns, even though that is a metaphor, uh, the, a hidden dimension of American racism We've done three segments so far. It's a pretty popular book. Uh, I have pointed out a number. I think I counted the number of times he uses race relations. So if he uh, has heard what I've said, then all right, then he is co-signing. He knows he is not ignorant about racism, white supremacy, even with regards to how he is practicing it in the book, Sundown Towns. Wowee. Much obliged. Thank you for letting us know. Uh, Thomas in New York, was that you that was going to speak? Thank you for yielding. Yes. Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, hope everyone's doing good, doing well as well as you can. Um, I was lucky enough to get my children into charter schools that um, push reading. Um, so um, in their first, second grade, they would get you know, have these challenges of who read the most books and things of that nature. So, um, since the fifth grade, um, I, and I think the fourth grade might have been my son, but since, since they all been on a what they were called classified by the testing standards of New York, a twelfth grade reading level, a college reading level, since a very young age. So, uh, reading eighty books in a year to get a certain incentive in school that that. 120 books. I remember one year my son got an award for that. And then they have to take tests on each of these books. What kind of that's the indicator to the teachers that they really read them. And um, the books they read now, I mean, very thick. Like, wow, you reading that? Yeah, okay. Wow, you know, very white, but, you know. So I've been lucky enough to have them, um, you know, big on reading. And of course, they see myself reading and my, my wife reading. 
my wife's um, been going to school for a few years as well. So she's um, actually about to graduate and um, pursue her master's degree. So they've been seeing a lot of her reading as well. So it's been putting good um, ethics in them. Uh, my daughter was accepted at American University. And um, she'll be starting there, actually, um, June to do some interning and stuff based off of the program she got into. So I'm very proud of her. And um, they all work hard, um, and they all read very well, you know. Um, as for the clips, man, um, San Francisco, the school in San Francisco clip. Um, the brother did a whole year in jail. A whole year for staging a protest. I mean, um, the message to the black students nationwide, which is probably why still to this day, that's the only school with a college of ethnic studies, ethnic studies, um, was pretty much um, don't even try it. Go to your university. They made an example out of that that man and the other students. So um, I think that's why to this day you still don't have any uh, any other major university. Um, it also shows white dedication to being a racist, to practicing racism, to have that man in jail for a year for just doing a simple protest of which, you know, he didn't hurt anyone. Um, the New Zealand massacre. Um, man, they took the live stream of Philando Castile being killed by the race surger down off of Instagram pretty fast. I remember it was rapidly, that whole stream went down, anyone who copied it and sent it, their sites got flagged and it was taken off of there as well. There was a big um, talk about that, how that just disappeared. Um, it then, you know, reappeared later, but um, right away it just disappeared. Um, live, live streaming while you're just walking around shooting people, it looked like uh, one of those first player video games. I saw the video, terrible. I'm shooting people multiple times, people while they're down to make sure he finished them. Had the manifesto, Dylan Roof, Elliot Rogers style. Now he goes from Australia to New Zealand. And every time I look at a map, then I associate the white people. Say, oh, those two places are close. And I remember I was working with someone from New Zealand, a white person. And um, I remember thinking, man, it's actually English very well. Not even, you know, thinking, yeah, like, that's the language in their country. But uh, I said, man, how, I guess you went to Australia all the time. He said, absolutely not, man. That's a four-hour plane ride. I said, four hours? I said, man, they're not close. He said, no, nah, man, it's, you know, 4,000 kilometers, something like that. He said it was away from there. So um, this guy goes all the way from Australia to New Zealand. I mean, um, kills a bunch of Muslims. Because they're in New Zealand. I mean, it just is, it's just so shows how um, white people think. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's massive um, worldwide. Um, then he makes references to Trump in his manifesto. And um, someone, a black woman I heard from Fox News. Now, I didn't even know they got Fox News in New Zealand. So that's even scarier. Like, they get Fox News in New Zealand? Um, now, um, I like the clip because he, he said it's a little over... 100,000 of the pure Mori people left in um, in New Zealand, which is true. And they make up 93%. 93% of the prisons in New Zealand are made up by these black people that they call Mori or Maori. Um, totally terrible. 
So the trap reference, you know, just struck me as odd. Um, and then, same week, we get um, the Gambino crime boss. He gets shot in front of his house and killed. Um, that doesn't happen too often. You know, bosses usually don't get killed. Uh, bosses, the last time a boss got killed, it was um, Paul Castellano, and the person that killed him was John Gotti, and, you know, he became the boss after that. Well, he put out the hit on him either way. Um, the killer got away, got caught all the way in New Jersey from Staten Island. Um, you can't get away with crimes in the age of surveillance. It's going to be impossible. When he shows up in court, he has um, blue ink all over his hand. So when they zoom on him, you see a bunch of words and statements. And what stood out to me was this guy in the Italian mob has Patriots in charge, MAGA forever, and United We Stand MAGA written on his hand. And I thought that that is like, wow, you know, like, this is the mob. Like, they, they, I guess they're white nationalists now. So I thought that was very interesting, the link between La Costa Nostra and white nationalism coming up in that case. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention was Amber Geiger case. She was back in court, fresh off of her GoFundMe-funded family Caribbean cruise vacation. Um, her request for the venue change didn't seem to work because they scheduled the date for August 12th um, in Dallas, where it happened, so that's good. The, the judge ordered her to hand over her passport as a punishment for her leaving the country to go on her vacation without permission while she's on trial for murder, you know, you know, you're bad. Give me your passport and go home. You know, um, kill a nigga in Texas and take a cruise through the Caribbean just to have niggas serve on you. I mean, just the irony of these white people, um, or probably do more than the server, you know? Um, and I think Mr. Jean was from the Caribbean, if I'm not mistaken, but her time sheet, um, what came out from this hearing is the timesheet doesn't indicate any significant overtime and uh, her cell phone records for um, up to a month prior to the shooting have been requested by the court. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I personally feel if she, she walks unless they can prove that they had, she had a prior relationship to the gentleman who she killed. Um, if they can't prove that, you know, then I think she's going to, get off. If they can prove it, then she has a 50-50 chance of winning. But um, it's terrible. And I'll mute my line, Gus. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, Amber Geiger, this is the uh, suspected race soldier in the shooting uh, down in Texas. White woman. Uh, case that we're discussing. Her uh, going on the vacation, like your bond can be revoked for such a violation. Like that can be a back to prison with you, you know, until we go to trial. That is, some might say that that is white fragility. I would say that that is white power, the system of white supremacy. Uh, four hours, four hour flight, I guess. Context, you know, context is everything. That's what's on the, uh, <clears throat> that's what they say. Um, I had to fly six hours to get from Charlotte to Seattle. So, you know, I guess things are, four hour flight didn't deter him. Opportunity to go and kill some non-white people. Hey, 
four-hour flight, no big deal. Context is everything. Uh, congratulations, uh, robust congratulations as well on your uh, daughter's success, American University, uh, tempted wife about to graduate. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, others that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Unmuted. May I be heard? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Are you with us, caller? Male caller, are you with us? Yes, I. Yes, oh. ma- yes, sir. Um, I am a tempted parent, and I have been. Um, you know, I have been reading to my son since he was in his mother's womb, and um, I, I can only stress how. I mean, it's been stressed already on this show. Extremely important. Um, as he's gotten older, he's twelve now. It, it has become a bit harder to. Um, to kind of steer him in the way of um, books that that have the topic of racism, white supremacy. Um, he wants to, I mean, and I, I don't want to force him into reading it, those books all the time, but I, I want him to read everything. And now he's, he's in that realm where he is reading everything. And one book that he did pick up that I, I was happy about was um, Third Eye by Sophia Stewart, um, young um non white male who non black female who actually wrote the story for Terminator and the Matrix. So he's enthralled with the book and he sees the racism, white supremacy within the book. He's able to actually depict that and, and pull things out, which I've I, I think is very important because reading is one thing, but comprehending what you're reading is extremely important. Being able to pick apart um certain segments of dialogue and words that are in the story. Um, and that's, that's been very promising. And also I've been letting him listen to the book readings on the book club. So he hears a lot of the things that we're reading. And yes, you have just um, on more than one occasion pointed out that the author is a suspected white supremacist, suspected racist. And um, from the language that he uses within the book, it's quite obvious that he is. Um, and I feel the same way about um, the book, the other book that's actually similar to this, which is Buried in the Waters. I forgot the author's name. Elliot but, um, Jaspin. Was... Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He he also, when you um, interviewed him, it was <laughs> he 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 practiced racism, white supremacy on the interview with you, um, dodging out questions protecting other white people, not calling them racist white supremacists, even though they were changing languages within the the context of the books that he was trying to publish and put out. It was just very interesting. Um, and and the next thing I'll speak on is something that I'm, I'm challenged with, and so are, so are both my sons, is um, uh, lifestyle change and diet, and that is sugar. Um, I'm, I, I have to say this is probably one of the more challenging things that I've that I've done and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, um, boosting myself, so uh, boosting myself up, so to speak, but I've, I try to be active. I have my son active, but getting off of sugar has been 
extremely difficult because it's in everything. We're not talking about just basic basic things in general. It's in everything. And I've been um, adamant about it to the point that I, you know, I had sugar in the cupboard. I threw it out. Whether it's brown sugar, white sugar, powdered sugar, it's gone. Um, the only thing that I think I have left is maybe uh, um, raw honey. That's that's about it. Um, I've tried to bread is can't even be. I can't even have bread in my household. It's just it's the, all the same thing. So um that that's a, a hurdle that I've been working on, and I've just been reading more about it and finding out more, and it means to keep myself more into informed about products that have it, and at the same time find other um, other um, foods that would be supplement that would help in that aspect. And um, also not eating as much, not eating three to four meals a day. Sometimes it's just not necessary. And I've, I've been taking my time with that and tr- as well as encouraging my sons. Um, but again, that, that's all I have for now. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Peace. Much obliged. Thank you so much for sharing. Save the bees. Save the bees. Um, and it's funny because uh, I... I am vegan, which means I don't consume honey either. Uh, the bees do not make uh, honey for us. And they have a great uh, documentary. Yeah, they have a great uh, documentary. Where they were talking about uh, honey and the honey, the business of how whites uh, get honey. And it was a white man calling things by their proper name. And he said, we're going to go get. And he stopped. Literally, he was walking. He stopped walking and he paused. He said, we're going to go steal the honey from the bees, calling things by their proper name. The bees do not make the honey for us. And whites uh, kill and save the bees. They kill off, you know, negras, bees. Anyway, uh, there's an article in the New York Times that was talking about that uh, because sugar is so addictive. And exactly what you said, they put it in everything. So many people, uh, victims, even racists, uh, struggle uh, with sugar. And they were uh, in this article, uh, which I plan to have at the California retreat. Uh, they were talking about tips and different things that you can do to try to uh, minimize, but they included honey on their list uh, of, you know, sugars to minimize or outright uh, decrease. We can talk about that perhaps at the yoga retreat, ways of reducing uh, sugar intake in your diet. Very important. Uh, Other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Unmuted. Can I be heard? I uh, heard both of you. Uh, we'll get uh, M on DC you. first. Uh, we'll get M on DC first. Yes, sir. Thank you. And uh, thank you for yielding the floor. Um, greetings. I wanted to, well, first about the sugar. Uh, I used to eat a whole lot of sugar. Well, when I was young, my mom wouldn't let me eat sugar. And then when I got to a certain age, I ate sugar a bunch and I got, um, I guess you call it addicted. I eat a whole, like I eat a whole bunch of snicker, you know how you get those little bite-sized snickers and I'd finish them all off real quick and it make me sick, but, um, it's not good. And then, but in order to cut down for me anyway, if I have something else to eat, (laughs) it solves the problem. Like, um, especially, uh, if I eat. Um, like I like to eat soups 
so vegetable soups and um you know you can make a pot of vegetable soup and eat that all day but when i eat when i eat the because it'll be a blend of vegetables um i don't crave i don't crave sugar um when i eat that but sugar is in so many things you know if i'm not eating a vegetable soup or if somebody's not cooking and i didn't do it myself then you know sugar is going to be in that um preserved food that i'm eating anyway another thing about reading so mom read to uh her children when we were young and uh she made us write book reports um and she she would so she we could read and she would read to us anyway and and we had to read and write book reports and turn it into her and then she would um you know basically we can't just she would she would give it a sort of grade and we'd had to basically we had to do the correct thing we had to actually read it understand it and produce um um good good work in in the report and one of the books that she would read to us at night was the pact um which is about three black men who promised to become doctors uh that was a good book and she also read gifted hands um to us and that's about um the surgeon is it Ben Carson I need to look it look it up but um but yeah so but those were good books gifted hands and the pact um and with reading I have no children of my own but I do have um a niece and a nephew and uh, my sister reads to uh, her her son and reads to um her niece and you know we all will at some point you know try to give some reading but um uh usually one or one or two of us will be you know kind of have that task of doing that um and i it's good to keep a journal in order to organize your thoughts my uncle had told me i needed to keep a journal um at a certain age he he had told me i needed to keep a journal i can't remember what the issue was but um but then once i started writing writing in my journal i realized it was it was actually difficult to figure out which thought i was supposed to write down because it was a whole bunch of thoughts at the same time and then the more i wrote the more i can streamline my thoughts um let's see oh uh i've been reading um so uh umar johnson dr umar johnson had come into my town um number of years ago and i spoke with him and i was t- talking to him about real estate and what was his advice for me because i'm a real estate broker he had told me to read every book about real estate um you know that i could find so um i went to the library and i picked out a whole lot of books about land um and some of them were good but some of them i knew the information was in there but that the some information i wanted but the first number of pages was talking about homosexual activity like what the heck does this have to do with land ownership and it was so i didn't read the book um i couldn't figure out where the you know the nonsense stopped and where the information i needed begun uh so it's important to pre-read whatever you're going to give your children um to read
and YouTube. So I did notice that I couldn't look for the most recently updated information ever since that shooting because I, I look up specific um, I look up specific topics. Um, I enter it into the search field and then I um, select the option to find the most recently updated or the most viewed or, you know, I, I put it um, into the search engine and then try to find, try to use those, um, those functions. And recently they haven't been uh, working. Um, so, you know, that, that's been unfortunate. Um, the rain, I expect that we'll have record rain this year. I don't think that's a, no, um, a very difficult uh, prediction. Um, I think we had record rain recent years that um, have recently passed. Um, but the reason why we're going to have record rain is because white people, ice albinos, whatever we want to call this creature, they're putting planes in the sky every single day, every single day, everywhere in the United States or in, in America, at least, but in a lot of other places in the world. They're putting these planes up that are specially designed to spray chemtrails or chemical clouds. And then the chemical clouds form rain. The water that is in the clouds absorb, absorbs heat. Even after the sun has gone down, if those clouds appear, they'll get significantly colder, even in the dark, even at night. If they spray the clouds and they start to form, it'll get colder. Um, there was a few more things I wanted to say. Oh, children do understand what you're reading. They understand. Um, and, and because language has rules and our brains are recording devices, we can, I can, you can uh, recall things that have happened to you from the beginning of your, you know, your time here, if, if necessary, um, on earth. Um, and Latin, the last thing I wanted to say, the last two things I wanted to say. First, um, uh, was buy a dictionary and teach your children Latin. That's the one thing. Um, um, so that, and, uh, help them understand prefixes, roots, and suffixes, sub, suffixes of words, understanding Latin, how words are put together, understanding that a lot of, uh, the word, way that the words are put together is you'll have cons consonant, vowel consonant. 30 seconds. And let me get off that. We need to, um, uh, every time we speak, every time, especially the, um, the bigger speakers, more prominent speakers speak, it needs to be about ending white supremacy. That needs to be the absolute main focus. Thank you. Much obliged, M. Hondisi, with us in uh, Virginia uh, for the retreat. I think that was Mr. Steele. I heard uh, folks speak up simultaneously. Uh, speak up simultaneously. Uh, was that Mr. Steele? Uh, was that Mr. Steele? Yes, indeed it was. Can I hear it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Awesome, awesome. Uh, yes, this is Ken Steele. I am, uh, I guess, uh, communicating to you live from uh, Los Angeles. And I just wanted to say, um, thanks again, Gus, for uh, putting on this program, and thanks for all the really interesting health tips um, that are uh, being shared on 
um, some of the more recent broadcasts. I think that that's um, some really constructive information that um, can help everybody. And something that uh, I guess a, um, a tip that uh, uh, some food that really has helped me um, and some of the problems that I have with uh, my diet is uh, celery. Um, celery is really good for lowering your blood pressure. In fact, if you are in a situation where you have um, a high amount of stress and your blood pressure um, is excited or you've consumed some food that, you know, spikes your blood pressure or you've uh, undergone some sort of a experience that um, peaks your blood pressure, you can lower it very quickly by consuming um, celery. And uh, you can uh, consume uh, celery extract as well. I think that uh, the extract is um, packaged in not in uh, what is that uh, vegan capsules, so um, it's all vegetarian based and everything. So um, that's something that uh, I like to consume. And then also, um, if you can't get a hold of celery, um, beets. Beets are really good. Beet juice. Um, or beet extract or eating um, just beets will will definitely lower your blood pressure and you can look up the, and you can look up this information in various studies um, you know I've recently I, I think I, I discussed this on previous broadcasts but I um, I took a compound uh, what was that uh, a few months ago um, some sort of peptide it was called bromelanitude or something like that. And I, I definitely um, was feeling good effects at first. And then um, eventually that stuff is, uh, it, it, it darkened my skin significantly for a few months. And um, oddly enough, as the sun is shining more, um, the darkening effect has waned significantly. So it took about 60 days for the dark effect to um, completely subside. But I will say uh, that, you know, it's left, it's left kind of a weirdish texture on my skin. Um, I, I definitely can notice that I have different um, skin now, and it's going to be really interesting um, as the summertime um, uh, comes in uh, to see how my skin, I guess, reacts to um, extra UV light after uh, taking some of these, you know, um, uh, some of these peptides. Uh, and then also, um, regarding reading, uh, I think the first book that I ever read was, a, uh, it was a scratch and sniff book called Clifford Follows His Nose. And uh, I, I do remember reading it, but I do remember, I think, like I remember my third birthday, so I can remember kind of far back. And I, I, I remember I learned how to read that book um, with the assistance of the scratch and sniff uh, little uh, sections uh, in Clifford Follows His Nose. And then I remember when I could read it on my own, I showed my mom, I showed my dad, and I showed my older brother. And... Uh, and then I, I, I remember being able to, to read very clearly, and there were kids who were in my class that, that struggled with it. And I had, you know, like you guys said, I don't really have a memory of being taught 
how to read, so to speak, but I, I remember um, associating, you know, the different words with um, the different smells and the different things in the book. So maybe um, you might want to explore uh, getting uh, books that awaken different senses um, in your children's um, I, 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 within your children as they read so they can um, better associate the words with uh, the things that are on the page and uh, some of the subject matter. And I guess one of the first books that really impacted me that I picked up on my own, uh, and this must have been in the um, in middle school sometime. I don't know exactly when. Um, I think it would be maybe uh, sixth grade. It, was, it came out in the year 2000. It was this book called The Lost Foundation of Islam in America. Uh, and it was by a guy named Clifton E. Marsh. I, I have the Amazon page uh, brought up here. And I remember I found it in my, co in my local college bookstore um, when I was at the store to get, uh, what was that, Sakura Pigma Micron pens and Prismacolor pe uh, color pencils um, because I wanted to be, I wanted to draw anime and I wanted to ink it and color it and, and do all the stuff with it. And I found this book and it was really cool because it, it was a paperback book and it had a really shiny cover and I didn't know what the Nation of Islam was. I had no idea what the Nation of Islam was. I, I just looked at the cover and it had a lot of black people on it. So I bought it and uh, uh, what was that? Uh, I read it and it was a it was really you know just matter of fact account of the history of the nation of Islam in America. But I, I thought it was really interesting because when um, some of the kids and uh, teachers at school saw that I was reading this book, um, they were they were disturbed by it, and I thought that that was really interesting, and I think it really encouraged me to read it a little bit more. Uh, so yeah, reading is great. <laughs> Uh, and it's really, really important. And it's and it's very formative to, you know, cut some of the ideas that you may have later in life. So I'll go ahead and mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Mr. Steele. Uh, I am sure 2019, like, wowee, uh, they will have all kinds of things to uh, stimulate the uh, <clears throat> senses uh, of young children, like, uh, oh yeah, like all kinds of things, more than one can even imagine. Reading is more important than watching television. Hopefully we'll have more uh, constructive health tips to come. Other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? <clears throat> Retired firefighter, yes sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, the first subject, uh, reading, uh, primarily was instituted by my, uh, my mother. Uh, and uh, I figure it was profoundly because uh, she was denied uh, that uh, formal uh, like education, such as reading. Uh, that sort of thing, uh, she had to uh, basically stay out in the uh, fields, plantation fields in Georgia. And uh, But she never uh, let that discourage her uh, motivation, and she placed it into her children. And uh, she used to 
tell me all the time that she couldn't punish me. Uh, put she could put me in solitary confinement. In other words, that's another way of saying going to your room. Uh, uh, as and she never did think that she was actually punishing me because she would go into the door and see that I would be reading. Uh, and in turn, I uh, attempted to share that experience with my offspring, uh, which I did. Uh, I would say that there was a challenge because. Uh, of different philosophies between myself and his uh, his mother, uh, but uh, I did uh, and continuously work on it. Uh, he is still in close proximity to me. Under the we're under we've been under the same roof now for since he was in uh, middle school, twelve, thirteen years old. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, about the female who was wrestled to the ground by an uh, Dade County enforcement official. The charges on her have been dropped, and uh, she is now in the process of uh, suing various people. Uh, another big subject uh, centered around this global system of racism down here in South Florida is uh, spring break, which is not unusual. It actually has been happening now uh, since uh, non-white black people were uh, allowed to go into Miami Beach in that capacity. I would say it first started in something like the uh, early 90s uh, and it just progressed as the, as the uh, technical equipment to communicate uh, uh, it uh, as it gets more sophisticated, more and more non-white black people uh, attend there. Uh, and of course, uh, everywhere where we're going to be at, we're also going to bring uh, our uh, what Mr. Fuller calls our, our culture. Your culture simply is what a person or a group of people are doing at the time that they're doing it. And I would say it's not always positive. <laughs> uh, although, uh, it seems as though that uh, non-white black young people's behavior, of course, it gets more, it gets more uh, uh, put on the news more so than uh, white younger people are doing. Uh, it gets, uh, it gets uh, not put on the news, put it that way. Uh, uh, there at this at the same time, uh, just as well as every a lot of places, uh, as long as there's a global system of racist white supremacy, uh, we have a uh, history of negatively impacting. Instead of on white people, we negatively impact on ourselves, and there's escalations of that on a global basis, including South Florida, and in turn, a group of black males. Uh, seven to eight to be exact, have been on a hunger strike uh, uh, in uh, response to that uh, for the last, I would say, week, week and a half. Uh, I know who they are uh, through my uh, participation in uh, activist efforts in uh, South Florida for the past 25, 30 years. Uh, ironically, 
the lot where they have their tent set up and their their beds it's right on the same lot where there is an a there is a abortion clinic one of the oldest abortion clinics uh in the history of south florida that's in the area where non-white black people reside i thought that was very ironic that uh that uh, uh where someone is uh uh protesting quote unquote against uh violence by black people to black people uh is on the same grounds of a abortion clinic abortion clinic uh last but not least oh yes i i, I missed the uh the uh the the uh program that you had on uh quote unquote black love uh, but I was interested enough uh, because in some parts the the retreat that they're having applies to me. Uh, I do perceive that uh, it's probably is going to attract people who are a lot more younger than someone who is 60 years old <laughs> like myself. But uh, just out of curiosity, I feel that I attempted to fill out fill out all of the questions myself and some of them some of the questions uh i didn't really have an answer to uh such as love uh i, I didn't have a complete answer to it i put it that way i did have an answer but it would it probably is not one that the uh the host is expecting uh uh as uh for instance i stated that uh, it doesn't exist because uh, in my mind, logically speaking, love and justice means the same thing, unless somebody can tell me otherwise. Uh, but uh, anyway, those, those are just some of my thoughts and some of the uh, things that I experienced uh, in the past and also during the past week. Thank you. Wow, we can have multiple folks give us reports from their experience uh, at the Revolutionary Singles Find Black Love event, April 13, North Carolina. Maybe retired fire, retired firefighter will find black love in North Carolina. We wait and see. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, the let's see. We have like 15 minutes. 15 minutes in the broadcast. If there are any folks that we missed totally, we have a hand up. Speak now. May I be heard? Can I be heard? Oh, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, thank you. Hi. I'll be real quick. Um, okay, I remember in the beginning of the um, book, um, the, um, when we were starting the book, you did mention that the... Um, the Arthur could be practicing racism just by the way he would word stuff and omit um, um, words and just the way he would change the words around and the way it kind of started off with the, the text is one way and then it, when he narrates it comes across something else. I think that was in the beginning, the first session. Um, reading. Uh, I read a lot until I was the only child. Well, not just that. My mom didn't let me watch because she said it's since some little messages. And um, my children, 
read. My daughter read a lot. She would always say I would make her read a lot of books. But my son in particular, because as he was coming up, we had, you had the program, the couch program, and then you would also have the book club. So as he started reading, I would make him participate in the book club, not necessarily calling, dragging with his words, but um, just reading along with some of the books, a lot of the books. So um, that helped a lot. And, and I do read to him. I'll read an article. Um, I read an article before he went um, to Brazil just to let him know. I think it was a shooting in Vallejo, and they were stating that um, the gentleman was in the drive through with his foot on the, I guess he had, must have had a foot on the brake if his car was in drive, and just how they just obsessively shot him. So I was just stating because the young man was 20, it's like, that's, that's you. So you have to always be cautious because that's you. And I kind of was um, emphasizing on it because when I asked him about it, he didn't know where it was. And so I was on my Google, and I was like, right in here in Vallejo. So, I mean, you know, because Vallejo's like 20 minutes away, so I don't you, you need to know what's going on around you, so sometimes I'll have to do that with him also. And I wanted to say congratulations to Thomas in New York on with his daughter going to college because um, I have a, a, a senior in high school also, and um, she's going to college. I, I think he's going to do Berkeley, um, Berkeley Music School, but he's got a whole lot of different offers, but I think that's where he wants to go. So congratulations to you, and... Um, I think I'll mute my line so someone else can squeeze in. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Congratulations to your son. Go Bears. Uh, let's see. Caller in Florida, thank you for yielding the floor. Did you have commentary, sir? Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, my my first observation of the the uh, audio clips, um, the the segment about I think the uh, the fertility issues, I think it was uh, some racism being practiced with the way that the uh, the person mentioned that I guess it was some kind of a study done about it was uh, I guess founded that black females I guess tend to hide speaking about this twice as more it sounded like in my opinion like she was trying to say are like she was going to say they're affected by fertility issues more like that's the tone that it came off to me but they said what they said and they tried to use oprah name if anybody caught that because they know that that's a um a victim of racism so they could so they could get i think black people to direct angst and frustration toward her uh and they they seem to only use when white women have the fertility issues they don't say white people have problems reproducing, but they said, well, this is an issue with with black women and see they they minimize uh like an equivalent of a black person to bring like to try to compare black people to what white people have worse and they have the fertility issues more. So I think they tried to, they tried to make uh, black females into that same uh, problem that white people have. And that's not necessarily the case. And another, uh, another tactic that they tried to use was in the, I think the jury, um, the jury selection, I think 
where they were saying, well, hey, you know, you can't pick someone because they're black. That's just against the what Constitution or something like that. So they, they like to practice the racism, and then they turn on black people and say, hey, you voted for Obama, you know. And uh, look at this. He, he, he got 90 percent, what, 80-something percent of the black vote. Black people are just racist. They voted for a black president. Now, never mind, you had all of these white presidents now. And then, see, that nobody said nothing. Then there was this president. See, and then uh, the person, I guess, uh, former President Obama, said that he was a black president. And then they, they switch it up then. So I, I wanted to point that one out. Um, and uh, one last one I had was the the lady that, that spit on the, I think, the black male or the black family. Uh, I noticed that there hasn't been any kind of, the, you know, the caricature names where they try to they try to bring silliness into it and use like alliteration, like coupon Carl and pool Patty. And when they try to do that, they are not uh, keeping the focus on the sincerity of white supremacy. Um, and that's the only thing I have right now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Much obliged. I was not. Uh, a proponent of that activity they it was they would make all these names and a lot of times the nicknames that they would use would not even be close to the real identity of the race soldier the perpetrator uh in the incident it was not taking this uh as serious uh draftomania i think we missed you did you have uh comments that you wanted to get in before we get ready to wrap things up draftomania Or maybe she did. Did we get? Did we miss anyone? Anybody that had a hand up that we totally missed? Yeah, we have. Greetings, Ivy. Greetings, Steph, and greetings to all the callers on the line. Congrats to Thomas in New York, and I think that was our mom in the Bay Area on um all their their children's success, and for Thomas in New York, his wife's um success just with the the excellence. Um, with the, just the scholarly work and the hard work that they have put in, um, Gus, you know, with the 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 race soldier, female spitting on uh, black people, you know, uh, white men patriarchy made them do that. Just like white men made them vote for Trump, made all the uh, white women vote for Trump. Uh, to our resident expert, um, man, I'm sorry that you had to deal with nausea and all of that. Um, I have a suggestion that, you know, I hope can help that maybe you can look into for the times that you have to work, you know, extra. Um, there are things online where you can make your screens black as opposed to white. I mean, white people just put white stuff on stuff to practice white supremacy. It's not, it's terrible to have white screens for everything. It's, it's, it's terrible eye strain. So if you could look into that, but if you're not allowed to have that at work, just maybe on your home computer and on your and on your phone and things of that nature, so that you won't be looking at your work screen with all this white, and then plus when you go home, and so it won't kind of be this this overload. Um, to um, M. Hondisa, yes, that that gifted hands book is by Dr. Ben, and that was very. I appreciated what you said about. Um, the homosexuality that was all in the book beforehand, the, the other books that you were looking into regarding real estate and just to, you know, examine books before you um, 
I guess, give them to someone else to read. That that was very informative for me. Um, as far as plant-based eating, man, it's just it's incredible. And the interesting thing is that the terrible foods that are out, like the Doritos or whatever it might be, like with all the chemicals and stuff that's in it, this stuff don't even taste the same anymore. Um, and I noticed that with plant-based eating, it can it can help with your this is not dinner table talk, but it can help with your, um, excuse me for the metaphor. Let me just take that out. This, um, it can help with your, your uh, menstrual cycles uh, for, for women. It can help with the, the blood flow and the, the pain because typically women lose a lot of blood um, during cycles, and it's really abnormal to be hemorrhaging the way that we typically do, and plant-based eating um, changes uh, all of that with um, most uh, vegans maybe even all of us. Um, and I want to say that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of racism being practiced um, on the documentary <clears throat> that had uh, Dr. I believe Dr. Mason on there. I forget what the name of that docu- documentary was, but the, what the hell? that doesn't mean don't watch it. Say it again. What the hell? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. What they did is that they, they tried to portray black people as, um, as being um, obese and, you know, white people, it's killing four times more of them than it is of us. Just like what the caller in Florida said about the fertility, how they try to project different things on us. What they did was they um, showed a, when they talked about obesity, they showed a black woman, then they showed a white woman, and they showed a black woman again. And another thing that they did is that one of the doctors that they had in the interview, it was only one black doctor one black, yeah, but one black doctor, and it was a man, and he was obese, and all the rest of the doctors were white, and none of them were obese. So it was like one of those situations where nobody's going to listen to you talking about plant-based eating and eating well and being healthy, and you're sitting and you're and you're sitting up here obese. Um, we're just I'm almost done, and um, they also they also were calling black people gorillas because when they would talk about gorillas, they would show the black doctor, then they show a a art a picture of a of another black man but it was he was like drawn it wasn't like a real picture of a black man and um and and then they would they would have the the gorilla so they would and cbs did the same thing where they would show a gorilla and then they would show president obama um and the last thing that i want to say is that they did have two white women who were who were obese who were actually in the um documentary but they portrayed them as victims so you felt very um he felt sorry for them and sympathy for them, for their obesity, and they're showing them in their walkers and taking all this medicine. And some some white man also who was obese, um, who they had the documentary around, but when they show black people, you didn't get that impression. You didn't feel sympathy or any of that. You just looked at them as, as, as just perpetrators of just overeating, I guess. And that was it. I mean, my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Contrast programming, I think Dr. Welsing <clears throat> uh, has re- uh, referred to that. That's the uh, term that she uses. Uh, she said they'll present images of like an obese black person uh, and then show really fit in shape white person uh, and just keep going back and forth. Like, Ugh, look at the Negro. Ugh. And ah, yeah, that's that's what a man is supposed to look like. That's what a woman is supposed to look like. Ah, ugh, back to the obese contrast programming. That's the term Dr. Welsing uses. Uh, we're basically. Gus, can I say one more thing really, really, really quick? 30 seconds. 
I just, yeah, I forgot. I just wanted to say that in saying that, that doesn't mean don't watch the documentary. The things that I said about Dr. Curry's book, that doesn't mean don't buy it. The same thing I said about Dr. I mean, Mr. Roden's book of $40 million slave, that doesn't mean don't buy it. Um, Mr. Firefighter, um, he, he laid out some great facts to, to, to show how uh, constructive that book most likely is, and I haven't read it, so that doesn't mean don't, don't, don't read it. And that was it. Thanks, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you can see Dr. Lathan. That would be one reason uh, to check it out. I think people thought she had constructive uh, tips to share. You can see her. She uh, is in the film giving out great info. Uh, with that, we will call it a broadcast. Uh, again, uh, we might have a few slots left for the retreat. Uh, you can email, double check. I said the deadline is tomorrow. So if you're listening to the archives, you can double check. Uh, to be sure, drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, but yeah, looks like we do have enough folks uh, to participate. Uh, if you still want to join us, Lake Arrowhead, California, July 3rd through July 7. Five days, four nights, plant-based meals, yoga, evening yoga, morning yoga, constructive counter-racist workshops and food workshop preparing vegan meals looking forward to a grand time in california if you have uh questions uh want to sign up until justice at gmail.com if you need any additional information uh and again looking florida for december 27th through january 1 much obliged to all the folks who participated. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, we will be back next week. You can check Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, you can also check uh, the Facebook page uh, for updates uh, for all of the upcoming broadcasts. Uh, minimum, we are here for segment number four for Sundown Towns. James Lowen, who apparently uh, said we are doing good work uh, reviewing his book that I think is rife with examples of how he practiced racism deliberately. Uh, and constructive information same thing ivy just said not saying not to read it i am learning quite a bit i didn't know they had a, a purge uh right down the road uh in bellingham washington i didn't even know about that so i am learning and observing how he's practicing racism multitasking they call it that'll be friday uh, excuse me thursday and then friday neutralizing workplace racism both 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific with that, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Race soldiers terrorize us constantly. We would be best, uh, we would be best served having our brain computers functioning at optimal levels so that we can crank out new solutions, new concepts to permanently solve the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle driver or passenger let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.